We're back, folks. After a few months hiatus, we are back in the studio here with episode seven of the Find Your Form podcast. Today's guest is a four-time adventure racing world champion, mountain bike champion, three-time Eco Challenge champion, five-time Primal Quest champion, professional mogul skier, and all-around endurance badass. Please welcome Mike Closer. Mike, thanks for being here. Mike Closure, welcome. We are, uh, we're back. We're uh, coming out of COVID uh, hibernation, I guess. So uh, this is our first podcast back since we had Ellen Miller on. So um, yeah, thanks for being here, man. I appreciate you taking the time to come in. Thanks for inviting me, you guys. Glad to be here and um, glad to be out of lockdown, if you want to call it that. We're fortunate here in Vail, though, that to have to be locked down too much because we have such a great backyard for us, you know, to go play in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think uh, talking with other folks um, just throughout the country that are, are friends of mine that they're not as fortunate. They're, they're kind of, they're kind of going stir crazy. So um, luckily we've got this, uh, yeah, like you said, nice big backyard we can go explore. So um, nothing's probably changed for you, has it? It really didn't. You know, what the big change was for me was um, going up on the mountain uh, for literally about, I don't know, maybe two months of great skiing conditions. Where normally when the mountain closes, we have about a month of good conditions. But there, we were up there with a handful of friends occasionally, you know, basically powder days, spring corn days, and maybe going to back. And, um, you know, it was like heli skiing. Some of the guys, were, like, hadn't done much of it including jp jim pavlich from Northside, side Vale daily owner he got really into it a bunch and um, he was just floored by the what well, what there was up there to offer with the, the snow conditions and then you go up there and it is like a ghost town and and the craziest thing was it's kind of like armageddon hit or something you know um there would be all the signage was still stuck in the snow and a lot of times kind of half buried in the snow and then it started, as it started to melt out, be falling over. And you'd see almost nobody other than a few other skiers that were going up the hill to enjoy the conditions. And um, it's just kind of this eerie feeling at times. Like I'd go up in the evening and sun, watch the sunset at times and it'd just be nobody up there. And everything was so pristine, you know. But then, then on the powder days, um, it then looked on like, powder days. It looked like if you drove through the valley, you know, there's supposed to be no uphill access because I think Vail Resorts was protecting their uh, liability side of things. And you go up and you come down, you know, a couple hours later and the whole front side of the mountain looked like the lifts had run for an hour or two. It was just completely tracked up. It was kind of comical in a way, but there was always plenty of stashes if you knew where to go and if you were willing to venture a little beyond the front side's uh, main trails. Yeah, I think that's a really unique scenario, right? Like the, they shut the, the mountain down on March 13th or something like that. And pretty much, usually it's a, it's a month early, right, from when they normally close the mountain. Yeah, I think we're so, going to close around the 15th of April this yeah. year or something like that. And that's typically one of our wettest months of, of snowfall. So, yeah, it's kind of an a interesting scenario with yeah, like you said, a little bit eerie, I'm sure, to be up there. I was actually, we were down in Grand Junction for most of that, uh, that time because we had, fortuitously or not, had just purchased a house in Grand Junction. So Great timing. Yeah, I mean, we ended up doing all of our kind of lockdown stuff down there. So 
Um, so we were kind of exploring that area, but yeah, just keeping tabs on folks that were up here and they're like, yeah, we're having a blast. We're, you know, we're, we're touring a ton. And, and I know, yeah, uh, Vale had kind of made a statement yeah. about uphill traffic and yeah, uh, it, it really what it was, they signed off. They, they said, I think it was in the newspapers or whatever, no uphill traffic allowed on Vale mountain or Vale resorts terrain. And I think the same went for Breckenridge and Keystone mm -hmm. and, and so forth. Um, but with, the Vale Valley, they did monitor some, you know, like I always went up and I won't say where, but I could <laughs> access the mountain, both Vale Beaver Creek without having to go past the signage. So I yeah. wouldn't feel so bad and guilty about going up and yeah, what sign? Yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't, you know, there's a couple of places they didn't have signs. So yeah. you could go up, but other people would just go right up by the signs all the time. I was yeah. saying, well, um, but I think the biggest perk for us was it kept a lot of the front range skiers that would have normally come up on those big snow days from infiltrating or you know skiing up all the fun snow we would have here ourselves mm -hmm. and I think that my take on it, I never really talked to anybody in the upper echelons uh, higher ups of Vail Resorts was that you know they were just protecting their liability side of, of course because they didn't have and they also I think were looking at it from like hey if we condone this or promote it like Aspen for say they were grooming the trails for everybody and promoting oh. it so it was like is that right? Game, oh yeah, game on, and and that was on three, if not four, mountains, and they executed into the the grooming thing into you know late April, I think it was. Mm -hmm. We skied off the front side of Aspen um, uh, from the back to the front, and it was groomed top to bottom the last day that they were gonna uh, potentially keep the mountain available for uphill traffic, and because yeah. they were doing this new snowmaking project up there. But anyway, the, the point is. Um, I think Vail was just protecting their uh, liability things, uh, side of things, and they were also looking at it from perspective like, hey, if we promote this, it could potentially uh, take away some of the services we need in the hospitals to treat COVID patients. And so, sure, because um, there was actually a couple of incidents on, I know at least one on Vail Mountain where somebody broke a leg or had a leg injury. I think it was a broken leg, and they had to bring search and rescue get crews up to help and. Um, you know, and that's kind of a sad side of things. And you know, I look at like, hey, normally we'd be in the backcountry more that time of year, uh, skiing. I didn't really ski backcountry, but maybe two or three times. And I think I skied 50 or 60 days after the lift closed. And that was just the way to get out and get a good exercise, you know, and ride my bike when the weather was good. But um, because the mountain was so accessible and so good, it's just like, you know, you know the trails, you know the snow's going to be good, where it's going to be good. And you don't have to go to these long approaches. You just get quality over quantity. Yeah, and you're not worried about avalanche conditions. And that too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did hear something about that. Like it was, uh, they had to make a statement about liability just because they were people that had gone up there and kind of gotten hurt and pulling resources, like you were saying, from um, search and rescue or just even taking up a, a bed in the, yeah. in the COVID area where they needed it. I think the same happened with uh, snowmobile access. They closed down the parking area at the top of Vail Pass. Oh. And so, like, if you wanted to ski Yaniva or something like that, you had to park on the, on the shoulders or find a, one of the two of the spots that might be available. So, mm -hmm. Can um, you still park up there at the uh, dot area and, and skin up? Um, you're not supposed to, but they took down the signs no. now, so... Um, yeah, so not signs. supposed to do that. There's no sign. There's no sign. <laughs> didn't see a sign. Well, that, my my take on it is that they they took down the sign, so they're probably allowing. Like, there's a small uh, area up there that 
is um, by the, I think it's by the restrooms, mm. by that gravel shelter. Right, right. So, but yeah, yeah they were shutting that down. I had shut that down for a while, but maybe they took them down because they took out the other ones over there and they wanted to allow some people, some legal parking areas. I don't right. know. So since we're talking about skiing, you grew up in Iowa. How did you get into, because you were a professional mogul skier. Well, for a short, well, maybe a decade or so, I, I dabbled in the professional side of mogul skiing here in, in Colorado. But um, I started skiing in Iowa because there was a ski area called Sundown, or still is, about five minutes literally from where we lived in Iowa. So it was, uh, and it was back, backwards, uh, I, as my dad would say, I always asked backwards in the sense of, the lifts started at the top. Well, you started skiing at the top of the mountain versus the base. And so I thought it was strange when I came out to Colorado that all the ski areas started from the bottom versus the top. But um, it was um, I think it was 450 vertical feet sundown, and Chestnut Mountain was across the river in Illinois, and that was maybe a half hour drive from the house, and that yeah. had like 700 vertical. But I only skied there a handful of times, and most of the time, I, for a couple of years prior to moving to Colorado, I skied in sundown. And that's where I learned to ski, but if you want to say learn to ski, I started skiing. Yeah. Really kind of learned to ski when I got out to Colorado. Yeah, it's another, it's, a, it's its own thing, learning to ski out here. Whole different level. Yeah. But then, so how did you get into to bump skiing? Um, they had a few little mogul slopes on sundown, yeah. and I kind of just felt that was more of a challenging, fun uh, type of terrain to ski you know and there were the no there were no train parks back then and right. they didn't really allow j building jumps on hills to speak of like you see now they they build all these parks and everything for everybody um, so the moguls was kind of a natural challenge I think and I came out to Colorado and just like it's you know High Lion and Prima Prano and all these other trails that were moguled up which is where we just spent most of our time skiing mm -hmm. so I don't know I guess I fell in love with the mogul side of things versus you know, chasing gates or running all the gates, although they can be a lot of fun too. Yeah. Yeah, because that was uh, at a time whenever, like skiing was, this was in what, the early 80, mid 80s? Moved out the winter of 79, 80. So yeah, I rolled into the early 80s and yeah. we had some great snow years, although I think my second year here, uh, so 79, 80, 80, 81 was just atrocious, like barely any snow on the hill and just mm -hmm. trash skis and late opening early closing and and then the year after that it was an epic snow year i say i mean just dump after dump and the mountain i think that was the year the mountain reopened in uh what have been may because i remember skiing in um game creek bowl on like june 6th oh wow you had to download the front uh, lower half of the mountain like chair eight type mm -hmm. stuff but yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but we've since had some big years like that here again. So, sure. yeah, and that was your, I mean, you kind of say, you kind of say professional mobile skier in kind of air quotes or whatever, but was that your first introduction to athletics at like a professional level? I mean, were you making, yeah, for sure. you were following a circuit, you were um, getting prize money and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, so there were, um, there was a pro mogul tour that was started prior to me starting what we called the 
Promogo. I think we called it the World Promogo too. Actually, JP decided. Yeah. Uh, J- Jim Pavlich. That was before the Bud Promogo tour. Right. Yeah. So ours was kind of the predecessor to that, but we p- kind of picked up on the coattails of what was the Promogo circuit or Promogo tour, which um, was kind of more of a Western United States tour. So Sun Valley, um, Utah, California, and they had a little circuit going on. And, various events and so um, I followed that stuff as well as the what was called the Dearborn competition over in Aspen Highlands was uh, I think I did that for about 10 years it was a every Friday event during the main two and a half three months of the season go over there and win a little rent money or gas money you know, yeah if you performed well and you know the professional as you say air quotes side of things um, I once I started running the pro mogul tour on my end I really kind of phased out the, any other competitions other than competing over there. And then I, when the Bud Tour came along, I did a, a few events in Colorado and one, one, I think, or two back east in Killington and so forth. So just got to play on that end of things without being the organizer and, you know, having that conflict of trying to compete and, and run events. Right. Yeah, so you were actually running that mogul tour, that, um, the professional mogul tour. Yeah, I think seven years, of it, wow. six, seven years of it, and had a lot of help from the Vale Valley, including my wife, Emily. Yeah. Um, you know, we just kind of scrapped together <laughs> the sure. help to put it on, and all the Vale boys would come and help me, Fleetwood and Danny Scalisi, and uh, geez, a bunch of these guys would come out and help set the course up and then compete it and, and then help tear it down at the end of the day. So <laughs> it was fun. And as an athlete, then, did that did that transfer into summer sports, or how did you make that transition into mountain biking? Because I think most folks know you from the adventure, adventure, um, adventure, racing. adventure racing world or mountain biking or, or cycling, right? So what, how did that transfer from being a, a competitive skier into you know, racing bikes or, or getting into backcountry adventure? Yeah, so really, I'm, I would say... The way it evolved for me was first the mogul skiing and then living here in the summer, everybody was doing something uh, athletic-wise. It seemed like coming from Iowa, Dubuque, Iowa to here, it was like, wow, different whole atmosphere and lifestyle and so forth. And so I started running really first, I think, was kind of the gig. Um, And, yeah, I was pretty good at, you know, uphill trail runs or trail running anyway and dabbled in that a little bit and then, the, there was a local mountain bike series that started up here in 1985. Was it 85? I think it was. And, and prior to that, there actually was some time trial stuff. So there was local time trial series. And so I remember racing against the likes of Gary Plath and some of these other fast guys that, you know, could time trial and climb hills well. On um, the road. On pavement. the road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think in 84, I might have done what was called the Cesar Moretti Memorial Race. And so it was a little road stage race here in, in the... Um, Avon Beaver Creek area and so we did um, a time trial up to I think well maybe it's four stages but anyway we did a time trial up um, what is um, uh, not Mountain Star but um, Wild Ridge Wild Ridge thank yeah. you and then a circuit race up there and then we did a criterium down in um, Avon and then they did I think the next year or so they did a circuit race and a criterium up here in, in Beaver Creek area and so, anyway, I dabbled in that, and then this mountain bike series started in eight, the summer of 85, 
And so it was uh, snug sports shops that put it on, and Katrina Almer and Ramsey, and I can't remember who all was behind it, uh, which kind of flowed over the years, which is still going. It's probably the biggest in the country for a local uh, weeknight series, mountain bike race series. And That's so now the Val Rec District. Val Rec District. Yeah. Highline took it over for a little while. Um, I, I mean, Christy Sports may even had it for a little bit. So, But I think, what is it now, 30-plus years for sure. Yeah, I think they, didn't they have the Davos anniversary was, Steve probably knows. 30-something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, 85, um, the series started, and Davos might have been raced that first year. So, yeah. anyways, at so least 35, yeah, or yeah. pushing 35 anyway. Right. So oh. th that kind of uh, led to the whole mountain bike thing. And, and uh, for me, I started doing some of the regional Colorado races, and I remember racing in Tipperary Creek with uh, first over by Winter Park, uh, for first real race, I raced against some um, more higher-level Colorado racers, you might say. And Ned Overend and I were climbing up this long climb up Tipperary Creek, and I'm in these trail running shoes and toe claps. Yeah. And I don't think I had fenders on the bike then, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm, actually I might have had a Gary Fisher bike then. I think I did. Uh, Gary Fisher picked me up, and that was my first sponsorship, so I got a couple of jerseys and shorts and a bike. And so... Um, because I'd won a Gary Fisher bike the year before in that Snug Mountain Series, which they had in three different towns, uh, Park City, um, Sun Valley, and Vail. And so they put the three um, fields of racers together at the championships, and that year they had the championships here in the Vail Valley, so it was a stage race. And in the accumulation of it all, I won a Gary Fisher mountain bike. And so I was talking on the phone with literally um, Tom Ritchie and Gary Fisher kind of debating they both were interested in having me ride with them. And so I'm like, okay, which is <laughs> the better deal here? And I went with Fisher, which I'm no regrets. And Tom, Richie, and I are good friends, uh, or old friends um, to this day. But um, anyway, so I won the Fisher mountain bike, raced the Fisher bikes the next year or two, and Ned was on this temporary creek climb. He just looks over at me, so, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? You know, and we kind of gapped up most of the rest of the field. I think I finished second to Ned that year in that race. And, um, kind of set the stage for many more years to come. And um, I remember uh, I was doing a thing with um, Warren Miller skiing, and uh, he was look. He always had local talent skiing with him in his films and so forth. And so we we're doing a thing over in Beaver Creek and then um, on Birds of Prey. So he's kind of tying in the whole racing scene over there, and then skiing in Beaver Creek and Vale. And uh, he he asked me about the whole mountain bike thing, and I said, well, you know, kind of falling into place as being a natural fit for me right now, and I'm going to pursue it as much as I can and see where, see where it takes me. And this was probably 87, because it was before I won the Worlds in Cromontana in 88. And so I, that was kind of like, okay, it's just the evolution of it all was I started having results locally and then nationally, and then uh, once Gary Fisher kind of caught on, he said, hey, you should go, we're going to plant you over in Europe. Well, first of all, with the in the fall of 88 to race in the world championships in Kwamantata, Switzerland, and then follow the week later with the World Cup finals in the, well, I, I think it was Grundig at the time. I think it was the Grundig race series at the World Cup finals in Torboli, Italy, Lago di Garda. Mm -hmm. So that's a quick ramp up, right? <laughs> to go from like racing the, yeah. the quote unquote local, local series to racing world championships. And you were, I mean, was anybody else doing 
was anybody else from the U.S. like posting up in Europe and racing that at that time? So there was one guy, and I think he was at the Worlds in Crown Montana as well. His name was Mark Analik. He was racing for Ritchie Bicycles at the time. And he was kind of a, he was a good rider, no doubt. Um, more of a character than he was a professional, I guess you might say, because yeah. he, when I say it, I mean that nicely. He had a great, fun personality. And I actually spent a bit of time when I lived over there for two summers in um, 89 and 90 uh, in France, uh, riding with him because he was based out of Chamonix. And, uh, Anyway, he, he was a real um, fun guy to ride with, and he had some good talent, but he was never quite that full elite level where he was going to excel at a world level, world-class level probably, but um, no discredit to his talents. He was just maybe a notch, notch below. But that year at the Worlds, um, there were two world championships being held at that time for two years, I think it was, because they were unofficial. It might have been three years, 87, 88, 89. So Ned won both the versions in 87, so he raced in Europe and then won in Mammoth. I think I was second to him in Mammoth in 87. And then in 88, I went to over to do the one in Cromontana, and I don't remember what happened. Um, I, might, I probably raced the one in, in Europe, and in the U.S. as well, and I think it was held at Mammoth as well that year. And I, I probably podiumed with if I remember correctly, yeah. to, to Ned again, because I think Ned won that one. But the one in Europe um, that year for me was, uh, I v validate it uh, in a sense that it had all the best Americans racing there. Tomac, Ned, Joe Murray, um, maybe one or two others at the time. I, it was missing the likes of Dave Weens and a couple of others. Probably Rishi wasn't there, I don't think. But, you know, if you're looking at the top, top level of the American racers, but... Um, it's always rewarding when you know that you, you want the, the best competition to be there because if you get the results, it's the most rewarding. Yeah, it's and cream of the crop. crop. Yeah. And yeah. then obviously all the best Europeans were there at the time, but Europe wasn't really on the radar so much at that time to the level of um, percentage of riders in the top 10 or 20 races. You know, like uh, I think for the next couple of years when it, uh, we're racing over there in the World Cup events, you know, Ned and... Daryl Price and Rishi and Weens and Tomac and all the top riders were going over and racing and um, dominating. We were still, we were a factor. Like, I mean, I think the top 10 probably had five or six Americans in it in the overall rankings. And so, yeah. and then give a handful of years later, it was the exact opposite. Yeah, it shifted pretty abruptly, right? It did, yeah. Yeah. I, I just think it's interesting that they had kind of two, two separate world championships you have the u.s one and then a european yeah. one so you know i look at like mine sure could you could say it was diluted a little bit and ned in 87 was undisputed because he won both yeah um, but the only thing i look at in hindsight of it all was the sanctioning with the official range rainbow jersey but i don't think the results would have been any different personally that i don't think that anybody else would have beat me on that day i just had Great form. I'd been sick early that year for three, four months of the season. And I thought I was always had respiratory issues, but I think it was allergies in the end. Mm. And so I kept just like backing down, backing down on my training and, and so racing and so forth, trying to get healthy. And by the latter part of the season, I think it started with the Colorado race and then all the way through like the Whistler stage race and then through the Worlds and the World Cup finals over in Europe. I'd never finished out of the top two. 
So I, my form was obviously good and right. uh, paid off that day. Cause I, <laughs> the other crazy thing was Emily, my wife, was pulling up. Uh, Gary Fisher contacted me the, uh, a few weeks back because he was, he was writing a book on mountain biking, and he wanted some photos. And I'm like, gosh, I don't know what I have. And I thought maybe we could find something. And then we pulled up online, and it was the World Championship race in Crown Montana. And if you see the start line, and I was, I think it was like 250, 300 people deep yeah. in the start line. But then back then, you know, it was kind of a wide field to a service road to a double track climb. And then uh, as it got higher, it became a single track climb. So plenty of time for it to work itself out. Yeah, but I mean, I just look at all these people go by, and then I think you could see me like 250 Oh, so how deep. did they do the, the staging? How did they do the call-up then? Um, all the other Americans got on the front line, and then the Tim Goulds and the likes of the world from Great Britain, whoever, I don't know. They just, I was a nobody. Yeah. And so I got plopped in the field, and Wow. Her registration number, but in the end, it didn't matter. I mean, it was probably a, a good thing for me just to settle in and kind of. I think by the top of the first climb, which was like 40-minute climb up, I came across the top in second or third place. I think it was Ned and Gould, and then me and then Tomac or something like that. And do you think that that terrain just so suited you? Obviously, you said you had good fitness that whole season, but or, or at that time. But is that? you think that the terrain there just suited you more because it was such a long climb and that was your, your kind of wheelhouse? You know, and that or, was kind of the way things went back then. It's too. all Mammoth, resort. Yeah, Mammoth racing. was the same type thing. Just, sure. But Mammoth was higher altitude and steeper, steeper roads at times, yeah. uh, probably, I'd say. Yeah, because that wasn't a big steep climb that I remember over in Cromontana. Um, but I think <sighs> I would attribute more just to, you know, good timing with conditioning mm -hmm. and um, having those skills, it was, it was pretty much similar racing to what we do here in the States, you know, yeah. big descents and slippery. And the funny thing was on the, in the video Emily had pulled up online, I'm following Tomac down. And so I'm in second place at this point in time. And there's a slippy double, slippery double track and Tomac washes out and you see him crash and get up and straighten his handlebar out. And I come riding by him, but he had, <laughs> he had, uh, new farmer john tires because he was sponsored by teoga at the time and he had brand new tread on all the time and i was racing on i think i had like two or three sets of tires the whole season so my knobs were real worn down there fisher fat track tires and yeah. i've seen him crash probably helped me because i took it a little more cautiously and you see our foot out kind of going down no suspension bikes probably weighed 28 pounds at the time i don't remember it was crazy and so that was the thing that i was um you know, just digging into some of your, you know, Palmares over, over the years of, of what you achieved in your early mountain bike season, race season, race career. And, yeah, to see that world championship in 88, um, a silver in cross country, and that champion, world championship was in cross country, the silver in 87, and then, uh, but then a silver in downhill in 90, right? So... And, and how did that work? Were, they race, were you guys racing? Was everybody that was racing cross-country typically racing downhill in the same weekend, or, or was it like a whole separate circuit? Or? So early on, we started out with a lot of stage racing. And yeah. so like Mammoth would have four or five stages or three or four stages, I don't know. And you would do the kamikaze if you wanted to be in the overall runnings. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Ned – Ned was kind of one of those exceptions. He never really focused any – 
real efforts on the down. He might have done that mammoth stage race. I, I can't recall for sure. Um, but there were a few people that were more specialized towards the downhill in the earlier days and more towards others, more towards the cross country. And then there was a lot of crossover. And so I was one of those crossover athletes, uh, at least uh, through 90, I think in 91. I, yeah, I still raced in El Choco, uh, Italy, in, in uh, downhill. Um, but, yeah, so in, Mam er, in um, Purgatory, Colorado, in 1990 Worlds, I was like, oh, man, these guys, you know, there's some fast riders, and all the Europeans were over here because um, it was officially uh, sanctioned UCI World Championships now. Right. Um, and Tomac was in drop bars because he was kind of on that craze of – because he was racing on the road at the time, and he wanted to <laughs> kind of stick with the same general geometry and fit on his bike. And so I think, as Herball would say, who won – Greg Herball, who won the downhill in uh, Durango and lived there and trained on that downhill, he certainly had the upper hand, but he credits his victory to – to Tomac riding in drops. Now, I don't know if Tomac would have beat him or not, uh, or, my, or me, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I had a good race. I look back, and I think I was three, two or three seconds off of Herbold's time. And that, at the time, um, was a um, pretty tight gap. Now they're within, you know, half a second or something right. like that. Because the downhills are much shorter. There's a lot less pedaling in them. Um, and they're very extremely technical. You right. know, uh, because of the bike technology and the rider skills and uh, and the race organizers' um, interest in challenging the athletes. So uh, anyway, I was I deserved that one as well. You know, because yeah. I raced hard and I remember watching there was some water bars up high and and we just had um, front suspension was really just coming in at that time. Like I just gotten a new RockShock from um, Turner. Um, yeah who owned RockShock at the time and put it on my bike. And, and so I... How much travel? Oh, gosh, it might have had... 60, inch, like an inch. Yeah, <laughs> 60 or 80 mil max, 80 yeah. max. That was long travel. Yeah, that would came up with that, that RockShock Judy long travel kit you could get oh, that was right. like 80 mil. Right. Yeah, I think it was an RS1 probably yeah. is what it was, but not oh, the sure. current RS1 that of we course. see now, the inverted version. Um, Anyway, so I remember uh, watching the section of guys going over these water bars because I could, could lose so much speed if you didn't do it right. And so I just watched and learned what these guys were doing and adopted it. And um, I was really excited with my second place at the time because it, I always felt like that was Herbal's race. He spent – that was all of his energy, and it was his year it was going to win that, and he did. Yeah, it's his backyard. Yeah, he came through. But in hindsight, I look at it, it's like, damn, I wish I was – Three seconds faster, or whatever sure. it was. <laughs> Could have had that rainbow jersey in that one, but anyway. So did you, with that fork, was you running that as on your cross-country bike too? Or was that, yeah, did you? that was that cross-country bike. And was, that's what everybody did. Yeah, it was downhill just, was cross-country bike. Yeah. I, her bike. ball might have had a special yeah. downhill dual suspension bike at the time. I don't know. I don't think dual suspension. Really? Um, yeah, probably not. Monoshock was, you know. <laughs> Late seventies, you could get a you know rear suspension BMX monoshock. I had one as a kid. Did it, you? Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, he, yeah. He, I, he probably just had a hardtail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just looking through some stuff online, there I saw a video of him kind of breaking down his world championship rig, you know, and I, I think it was that same that ninety bike, and it was a hardtail Miata. Yeah, right. Yeah. What what, what would be the specialty then? Like if you looking back, 
you know, you got like guys now that race and like Grotz, you got to have a nasty climb for him to do well. He goes to the Olympics and gets, you know, not a great result. 21st in, in, or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, like you're looking back, are you a better downhiller or a climber? Uh, good thing for me, I was decent you're at, at both. You're good at both. But, I mean, you're kind of legendary. Like, Jake and I were talking six months ago about when he first started racing, following you down off Fail Mountain, and you went, you know, dropped it off like an... <laughs> oh, Bailey's. We, we were coming... They canceled the Vail Re, the Re, Rec District Wednesday night race because of lightning. And so we all called it after we had started, you know, and we were like, oh, let's just head back down. And we were coming down, and we're all on our cross-country bikes, and you just make the left over Bailey's bailout and just like, boop, boop. I'm not doing that, dude. I wouldn't do it now either. I look Everybody at that else thing. is like, where's he going? Oh, yeah. look at that. I look at that thing now. It's like mm, hairball. Yeah. I can tell you, I had a couple close calls in the races and training where you just about end over it. Yeah. And if you don't hit it quite right, then you watch, um, what was the French kid's name? Nico, Nico Vuillos? Yeah. And they aired it. In the world championship, I guess that was the 2000 it world 2001 yeah. or 2000. Was it 2001? It was yeah. uh, it was right after uh, 9/11, so I think it was 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, these guys were airing it. I mean, wow. in big time. Yeah. So, um, anyway, back to you know the question. You know, my skills. I think I was pretty well balanced, and fortunately for me, but um, in the end, I migrated towards the cross country just because the downhill wasn't really ultimately my cup of tea mm -hmm. to race at that level because i didn't come from a a bmx background or a real uh, mountain bike downhilling background and i think those skills really played heavily in uh, in the results of some of these athletes that became multi-time world championships and contenders throughout so yeah well i think you see that now at the at the world cup level or the you know the, the world championship level it's just you have to be you have to check all the boxes, you know, to, to be, you can't just survive on, on lungs and legs, you know, you got to have that skill. Um, you know, that's, I think what you see with, with Howard for a long time, he was really trying to, uh, bring that technical skill set up, you know, cause he was just dominating in the U S and you go to Europe and, and just kind of struggle to, to be, like you said, in the top 10 or top 15. And, and he just didn't have that quite, um, handling skills at that speed you know you're just going that much faster but um yeah it is interesting to, to watch that that shift of when the because mountain biking started in the u.s and then, then we go to europe and we're dominating and then there's this this shift of like all of a sudden you know if we get a guy in the top 15 in a world cup it's just like you know we've we've but right you know and and we see it on the women's side right now where the u.s women are really very dominant in the in the mountain bike world you know and i don't know if that's um because it's a little bit level playing field i don't know i don't know why there's such a there's so um much more competitive than the men at that elite level but it, it really makes some exciting racing yeah to follow along and it's um you know it's it's fun to see the u.s women competing in the u.s for those those Olympic bids and, mm -hmm. and all that, you know, it's, I'm sure it's not fun for them to be, you know, it's so cutthroat, but, um, yeah, well, I look at, um, I was thinking about, I follow Thomas Frischnick's, uh, son, Andre, so I'm in obviously the Scott team with Nino mm -hmm. and 
Frischy, you know, he's such a gifted dad, Thomas Frischnick, such a gifted athlete, cyclist and all. And his son, um, Andre, trains with Nino Schroeder. And um, he can't, you know, hardly crack the top 10. And they're back to racing now. I looked at a couple of results, yeah, and I, I think he's had some misfortune and, and maybe just didn't perform well but in a couple of those Swiss races. But um, that level, I mean, when you look at uh, Vanderpools, who's coming up, and there's just several other names that you're probably more familiar with than I, but um, Nino and Lars, uh, what's his name, the other Swiss guy, um, they're almost at another level than um, – most of the field, and, and particularly, I think, with American athletes. I mean, is Grotz still our best performer right now? Um, well, you got Christopher Blevins, who's, um, I think, well, I, th I don't know if they've officially announced, like, of the long list of, of Olympic, uh, they've announced the long list for the Olympics. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think Blevins is probably our, our top racer right now. Um, but... Mostly, it just seemed like Howard kind of like said, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna step back and, and kind of do some other fun stuff because he's he's not racing World Cups as much, and um, you know he's kind of like just doing. I mean, he's doing a bunch of like bikepacking stuff and is he just you know riding for for fun? Is that because friends. of COVID or because he's just? Like well, I think it's a combination. I think he had kind of decided, you know, like whenever maybe two seasons ago, he's like, you know, I'm just gonna. I think he was pretty burnt out, and and it seemed like he was just gonna back off and and. Because um, at that point, there was the way the Olympics are selected, it's all based on points. And mm -hmm. he's like, well, for the amount of points I have, I'm, I'm kind of the shoe-in for selection. So I don't know if that's necessarily fair if I don't necessarily want to be, you know, committed to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so um, – and I don't want to speak for him too much. I just, I've just been following it along a little bit and, and just getting kind of bits and pieces. But it did seem like he was like, hey, there's other people that are really kind of chomping at the bit for this Olympic selection. And um, – and he was more content with doing, you know, like kind of going off the grid for a week and riding his bike and, and you know, wow. just doing some. Uh, well, maybe he needs that 100. regeneration, you know, mm -hmm. mentally and physically sometimes. It's, yeah. You just need to. Well, especially when you start that young, you know. Yeah. I mean, when you're starting racing that, that competitively that early and you're kind of piped into that, that USA Cycling, um, you know, format and, and, and that produces champions, but at the same time it, it can create some some burnout too so yeah i think there's a balance here for sure i, I know Graz was one of my son christian's rivals in the, the high school league when my son was racing that mm -hmm. back was that like six eight years ago at least now mm -hmm. probably yeah. yeah that was kind of the great hope though <laughs> like for u.s cycling because u.s cycling kind of went the way of lance really mm -hmm. when when lance was popular we had a lot of great riders mm -hmm. and then whoosh, that popularity falls off and now we we're hoping for christian yeah, yeah. He, the kid's got talent. If he ever decided he really wanted to get back into the sport. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's gifted. I, I just amazed at how strong he was and with very little training in comparison to what a lot of these other athletes or riders are out there doing. I mean, you, you, both your kids could probably race World Cup if they really focused on it. I think so. I mean, Heidi's back into it. She's actually going to race tonight. She's, yeah, racing in the VRD series. <laughs> oh, she is? Yeah. yeah. Funny. She's, uh, Dad, can you check my seat post and will you make sure this is good for me? And I uh, sure go. You bet, Heidi, no problem. And um, she's funny thing. She went out uh, Monday night to go check out the Lost Lake ride yeah. loop. And it was at like 6.30 or 7 at night. And Emily go. my wife says, don't you think it's a little late to be starting Lost Lake? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'll take a light. 
So I get done with our little Monday night group ride, and Emily calls me, have you heard from Heidi? I go, no, and it was now like 8.15, and it's dark like 8.30. She goes, I'm jumping in the Jeep to go see if I can find her. And she found her coming off Lost Lake Trail. Yeah. Dark. Yeah. Yeah. No Heidi says, I saw those headlights. They look like Jeep headlights. I hope that's mom. <laughs> <laughs> it was. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, Heidi actually, after doing the um, – she was ski racing at the time in the moguls with the U.S. team. Um, so, she raced in Europe on mountain bike. Yeah, so yeah. she went over to Europe, and um, it's kind of a funny story. I'll tie into it. But she went over with the U.S. women's development team, and Connie Carpenter Finney was one of the coaches in the program, and Heidi had won the – Colorado High School League um, division, so she got invited over, and um, Emily said something to her, like, you know, Heidi, it's a di little different level over there. It's a, a bit different level. Those girls are pretty talented, and they're tech good technical riders, and, and you know, you should really f see what you need to focus on and so forth going over. Well, Mom, you know, it can't be that. It's not like um, Dad went over and raced in Europe and won the first race or two he got into, and she goes... Well, Heidi, as a matter of fact, <laughs> contrary to that statement, so, I mean, that was kind of funny, but, yeah, um, Heidi got schooled over there right off the bat because they were good technical bike handlers over there, and Heidi was really, really focusing in defense to her. She was focusing her efforts on the ski racing stuff and the mogul skiing and conditioning for that, and, you know, she didn't need to go over there and hurt herself, but it was an eye-opener for her for sure. Yeah. So she yeah. did a couple, three races over there, I think. And All mountain bike. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, a funny Heidi story because um, my daughter's 13 now and um, they, she's been doing Taekwondo the last couple of years. And, um, and I would go in there and, you know, drop her off and hang out while she was practicing and stuff. And, um, and then I actually started, because I was going, I actually started doing some jujitsu there. And, and mm. you know, because that was something that was completely new to me. And so I would see Heidi there. And she, so I remember on the first day that I was, um, there practicing jujitsu, Heidi was there. And, you know, we were both white belts, like, oh, she's a white belt, I'm a white belt, you know. And it, we do some drilling and stuff, and, and Heidi's very focused and, and takes it serious. And, um, and so, you know, we're drilling stuff, and, and she's being nice to me. <laughs> and we start rolling, like, at the end, and you're just kind of, you know, just free roll. And, I mean, it took five seconds, 10 seconds, and she's got me all tied up in a knot, you know, and I'm, oh, wow. I'm tapping out, and I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> hold on, hold on. <laughs> well, and so, you know, then Tatum is, uh, goes to Taekwondo, and I, I had picked her up one day. Linda had dropped her off, and I picked her up. And um, I'm like, hey, how was it? And she's like, well, we sparred. And you could tell she's a little um, upset. And I was like, well, how was it? What, what, what's going on? And, and she's like, well, I, I lined up with Heidi, and um, she, she you know, punch me in the face, you know, they have, they have headgear on, you know, and she, she's like, Whoa. she punched me in the head, and, um, and I fell down, and, and, you know, she's just kind of got beat up, and I was like, well, you know, Tatum, she's an Olympian, right, and so she brings that into everything she does, so I, don't, I know she doesn't mean to hurt you, but she is taking this serious, and she, she's making you better, you're making her better, she's like, I know, I know. and she's just fighting the tears back, but, How funny. Um, but I mean, she has a lot of respect for Heidi, and I think Heidi's been very sweet to her, and um, and Heidi was sweet to me when she had me oh. on. <laughs> I hope there was she had you in a headlock and yeah. was thumping you. you know? <laughs> wow. How do the family rides go? Like all four of you go out. And, and when you talk about the kids, Emily's legit as well. Goes on these tours with you guys and has been 
like she's the young unsung badass of the family yeah. for yeah. 30 years. Emily's, uh, you know, she did win. Uh, she's not in that many competitive competitions, but she's very competitive. And she brings out a lot of that in me, you know, like um, a lot of times I might be racing and thinking, oh, I can't disappoint Emily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, well, it's a, sort of, you know, um, but Anyway, Emily won the Trans Rockies trail run yeah. with, with Cindy Crawford the first year they did the women's team uh, relay, or not relay, it was a team event. And so um, that speaks volumes for what um, Emily's competitive um, ability and drive is about, uh, as well as, you know, she used to do a long time ago those time trail series we were talking about on the road bike. Uh, a friend of ours who um, used to support her a lot, um, just on the side, you know, like, I think we were, Emily and I were dating or maybe even married at the time, but um, anyway, Tom Krabs, who's pa since passed, he was um, a big supporter for Emily and kind of coached her along, but Emily was uh, very competitive with that stuff, and um, like, uh, we go on our Wednesday night uphill ski, uh, and Emily's one of the boys in, in the group, usually. There's a few women that will jump in here and there, but usually Emily's right up front with the guys, and so, yeah, she's got some skill and uh, talent there as well uh, and then as for family rides we haven't done much in a while um, but they're a lot of fun when we do get the opportunity we, we've skied together you know uphill skied we've uh, biked in Utah together and um, but at some at some point somebody's gonna put a, the pedal down like you're all <laughs> riding together and, and you know the little twinkle in Heidi's eye, like, mm, well, I yeah. got dad today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Heidi is one of these really fast starters out of the gate, but she'll tend to slow down either that or I get a little faster. I'm a little slower starting these days. But, yeah, Heidi's always quick out of the gate. Um, Christian, uh, you know, I think he's, he's got more of this balance uh, in his um, approach to things. So, like, he, he doesn't usually go out and attack, although – he did attack. When Some we people call that patience. Mike. Patience, yeah. <laughs> that he probably has too. He hasn't attacked dad in at least an hour. <laughs> right. But no, he's, he has attacked me a few times on the rides. And watching him go downhill, or sometimes on the mountain bikes, I'm like, holy smokes, kid. I've had a lot more experience and a lot more crashes than you. I'm kind of thinking in my mind, slow down a little. I don't want to witness yeah. something that is not going to turn out well. Um, but uh, where was it? He was riding. Uh, we did a little group ride with the pedal um, was a mountain peddler, and George Hincap, he was in town, and it was back with the Colorado Classic or stage race or whatever with the pros were in town, and Hincap, we rode up and over Battle Mountain, and Christian decided he was going to attack a few times on the climb, and George would reel it in like George knows how, you know, and Christian would come back and rest up a little, and he'd attack again, and he's got a little of that spunk in him. Yeah, that's fun to see. Yeah. As a father, you know, to see that, just that, yeah. So, all right. This, I mean, I'm, you know, watching my daughter now get into some, some mountain bike racing and, um, and it's all on her own accord, you know, it's, a, it's what she wants to do. And, um, you know, she's not asking me for coaching or anything like that. And, and, you know, I just help her make sure that she gets there on time and that her bike's in working order. And, um, yeah, she's got a, she's got a good head for it. And it's fun. It's fun to see. I see that in your, yeah, your daughter there for sure. Yeah. Um, How is it when you ride with those guys? Like, George and Lance and, and you, I mean that's like an all-star cast out there riding you do fondos and you know there's 10,000 other people they they want to come attack you guys yeah Steve um, I 
I don't kind of, I, I try to put myself in that class when those guys are doing it, but when we, when they're in these fondos and people want to light it up and test themselves a little bit, um, I was, come, we, I came back from Mallorca last year and it was after the Eco Challenge and I'd been under the weather quite a bit, um, just respiratory or whatever, going uh, from Eco to there, to Mallorca, and then it was right after, it was like two days after it, I went to, Greenville, South Carolina, and rode in uh, George's Fondo because that year I was talking about with Christian and uh, the, the ride here in the Vale Valley, um, George had invited us to go do his Fondo in that fall, and when it, it didn't work out, but he said, hey, the invitation's always there. So, and answer the question of how it is riding with those guys and people attacking. That was a fast pace in, in Greenville, and I remember I took off a, a layer because it was quite cold and rainy, and uh, that day and the morning was colder and and so I was peeling my vest off on the start of the climb and I got gapped and I didn't know how far back I was because I couldn't really see him it was a twisty turn and it turns out I don't think it was that far back but I didn't catch those guys in that group until like 50 miles later oh, wow. so I rode a lot of it solo in the rain and um, anyway it caught on and they're like you've been with us the whole time because it was Hincappy and Lance had cut short the ride I think he did the short, shorter segment and um, Christian Vandeveld and um, uh, Bobby Julik and a handful of others were all up front. And so uh, it was fun to jump back in, finish the last 10 or 15 miles with those guys. But yeah, Did you just play it off? Or you're like, yeah, 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 I've been here the whole time. <laughs> I told them I got dropped. Yeah, I got dropped. So I'm taking my jacket off. You guys <laughs> Somebody dropped attacked me. in the feed zone. Yeah. I had to bridge back on my own for 50K. Just got know. dropped. Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it was it was fun, and those guys like when I ride with them over in Aspen on the dirt for say. You drop them? No, I mean because Lance can't ride. I mean he can climb, but can he? He can't. Lance bike is handle. a good descender, but George is a better descender. Really? Yeah, and I think Lance is teasing George. I've been listening to his podcast, the Move yeah, stuff on the lately. Move, yeah, and he's just Lance is always feeding him crap about you know. George is cutting wood. Yeah, and, and Lance is riding yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, but Lance, I rode with him a month or so back and maybe even six weeks ago and he was come coming back in his fitness level with because he got shamed on their mexico ride which he talks quite a bit about and so he stopped drinking and he was training more and eating healthier and so forth and yeah his level fitness um is up there and i i was talking to dean hill who's a friend of mine in aspen as well and Lance's, and they rode together in this 50-mile race. I didn't know what was going on. I guess it was a relay for, if you wanted to do a relay the second day, the first day was an individual or something. Then um, they won the team division, and uh, Lance was strong performance, but Dean Hill, who's fit, very good bike handler as well, he he put the better to Lance in the, their individual splits. But and and we said we better not poke the bear though, because. <laughs> we know what that'll bring out. But like, in, I mean, Costa Rica, you didn't really train for it. You went down there and short roped him through the jungle. That first day definitely was more my element and not so Lance's. And Lance had um, made the, you know, the, the mistake, which really wasn't a rookie mistake, but in his case it was, drinking this electrolyte drink that he had never really trained and prepared with. And I think it was one of the Aspen guys who said, yeah, you just mix this, you'll be fine doing this. And myself and um, Lance's handler, if you want to call him mechanic and so forth, Dave Bolts, looked at him at the dinner table that night before. You sure you want to do that? Yeah, I'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. And he was, you know, he just had stomach bloat. I think he had too many electrolytes and not enough. Um, 
water balancing in there, and mm -hmm. then with the heat and humidity, and I think it was, I don't know, what is it, 14,000 yeah, birds that first day? 12 plus, yeah. It was something big anyway, and um, he struggled, and I basically helped nurture him through that, like it was really kind of adventure racing-esque for me, uh, looking after a teammate or vice versa, you know, how you you want want to help your teammate through, in this case it was Lance, um, thankfully was on the short end of that, not me, and uh and then the next two days of the, the race, he kind of came around and dropped that whole electrolyte drink uh, process and back to more of a normal deal. And you could tell Lance's, you know, just his, his general gifted ability and his talent he has because he could put the watts to those pedals. And, you know, whether it was the long climbs or the flats, you know, on the third day, I, I got dropped from that front group. And uh, it was a, like, I don't know, maybe a... Maybe it was 40 miles, but it was fast. Flat, sandy, railroad track stuff. And um, I didn't get in that group. And then eventually um, he shelled a little bit and came back into the second group that I was in. And we rode into the finish together. But he's, he certainly, um, you can see the raw sheer talent the guy has. Because he really hadn't trained much for that event either. It was kind of like, hey, I'm going to go down. and You want to join me? Because um, George isn't going to show up. It's a, I was kind of honored to be considered as a replacement for George Hincaptis. <laughs> <laughs> Did I see on, so I was watching a YouTube video about that race and at the very end, it was, yes. you know, well-produced piece. And then at the very end was this like grainy local iPhone footage of somebody falling, falling through. through. Was that you? Yeah. Cause it, actually, I, I saw it the first time and I was like, Oh my God, that guy almost fell through. And then I watched it again because as, as it kind of panned around, I was like, that looks like Mike. And that was on a bridge over a river full of crocodiles. We're like 30 feet up. I think the crocs might have been at the other end of the country, but they, dude, if there's water, <laughs> there's crocs. There's crocs. In my mind, <laughs> if I'm in Costa Rica, there's water. If there's for sure crocodiles. You're, you're running across a railroad bridge, jumping from railroad tie to railroad tie carrying a bicycle mm -hmm. and you miss actually it was it was crazy because i actually i watched this more closely and they actually they the editors could have put in the the proper clip because mm -hmm. that was a downloaded really grainy clip, yeah i was right? gonna say yeah and somebody the guy who sent that to me sent me the proper one and they never put it in the edit uh being lance's team that is uh but yeah i watched it and what happened was I hit the railroad tie with my slick cycling shoe tread, and it was an oily crease tie, and my foot just slipped, and my forward momentum um, took, thankfully, in a way, both legs, thankfully, through those, those two ties. And uh, there happened to be a plank, I think, on the one side, and the railroad um, track on the other side. So I dropped through, the bike bounced up above me, my glasses popped off my helmet, and they started to fall through. And just as they were falling through, I just saw them and I grabbed them. Um, <laughs> and I stood up, and I, the guys, some, a couple of the guys around there that were spectating, maybe one of the guys with the little iPhone or whatever they had, um, offered help. But I was actually fine, and thankfully, I just had a little bruising under the underarm because I got caught. But if I would only had the railroad track there, who knows if I would have stayed up. But I, because you for I sure would have lost your glasses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> God forbid that, right? Um, so, yeah, that was kind of scary because I think it was probably 20, 30 feet above the water. And I don't know what was in there. I didn't have to find out either. Right. 
yeah, just seeing it, it was like you just kind of popped right back up, and I was like, man, he just played that off. Like, like it was nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, did he just fall through the tracks? Yeah. Jumped right back up? Like, yeah, I meant to do that. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. But that was a really cool race. Um, glad I did it. Happy if it's one and done for me as well. Yeah, right now, that's what I've heard about that race is it's, it's just the heat, the climbing, the, the jungle conditions, right. you know, I mean, it just destroys your bike. I mean, you might as well just leave your drivetrain there. Pretty um, much. And, uh, yeah, it sounds like it's from, from anyone that I've talked to that's done it, it's usually like a one and done thing. Um, I know Todd has gone down and done it a handful of times. Josiah was crushing it there yeah. that year that I did it with Lance two years ago. Um, and I think he had a bad day, or he might actually won the overall, because I think day one, he came back a little bit, lost a few minutes, and then day two and three, he brought himself right back up into the top three, I think. And he, like was, he was second on the whole deal. Yeah, and he wasn't yeah. that far off, I think. And that was a week after Xterra World? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And is, is it... It's, a duo and a solo format, or is it just a solo format? <laughs> I think there's an unofficial dual format. Mm -hmm. So, like, we were, um, I think we had an A and B number, I okay. think. Yeah. But or maybe, maybe it was one consecutive number to the other. Um, and I never did really find out how that all worked, even going into it or afterwards. Um, but we were racing as partners, okay. in this case, I yeah. guess. Right. You know, looking after each other. and. Uh, although he did drop me on the last day, and I finally caught up. <laughs> I should have dropped him going in. <laughs> should have dropped say, him yeah. on the first day. After all the help you you gave on day <laughs> yeah. one, and then uh, yeah, he, he just, just leaves me in the, the dust. woods on day three. Like, Thanks for nothing. But hey, you know it, that was a competitive that last day. I mean, it was full on, full throttle racing. Yeah, it wasn't like you're trying to survive two long stages. One day two, going up into volcano hills and mountains and back down out there there was a really cool descent on the road we went up into the clouds on day two and it was big i mean i don't know six eight or more thousand vertical feet up or something and we descended in this cloud forever and i was following lance it was a paved road for the whole top two-thirds of it or something like this and thankfully i could just see enough of them maybe 50 feet ahead and i just kept that in sight on these switchy paved road turns and he was blazing like I would never have gone down that that fast on my own but then we got into technical downhill double track to single track and I was having some gear issues and so forth so I just kind of ride ahead and at my speed and I'd stop and wait for him for you know 20 30 seconds or 10 or 15 seconds whatever it was it wasn't that long yeah but you know I had the upper hand on the technical stuff but he certainly was blazing on those downhills and you know as I said earlier those two guys are really talented bike handlers and you know, Lance, you put him on terrain he's familiar with, it's not easy to keep up. How have yeah. you never gotten hurt besides uh, Davos Dash on a deer trail coming back? What is that story? Because I was, I was in that race, that Davos race, and we were talking at the top. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, okay, I'll see you down there. And then you take off. And then that night, I think I went to awards and came home or whatever, and then that night, someone sent me a message and said that you had crashed and like punctured a lung, broken a collarbone. I mean, that's the worst you've ever been hurt, isn't it? Uh, yeah, probably. It went, especially because I spent, I think it was four, maybe five nights in the hospital, which was, I surely shouldn't have been in there that long. Maybe the first night and that be it. But um, the way it all played out, I did the Davos race and 
I don't remember where I finished. You know, I wasn't. I didn't win. You know that you probably won it. Um, the uh, I was warming down, and Nico LeBrun was staying at our house because Xterra was coming up, and he he rode back to the house, and I rode the bike um, the road up to come across the little trail, uh, the North Trail section, just at the end of our house, uh, our road, which is very close to our house. And it's maybe three-quarters of a mile of dirt. And there's two little switchback turns right before you get back onto the cul-de-sac at the end of our road. And I was coming through there, and the grasses were really tall that summer because we had a lot of moisture, and this was in July. And um, my handlebar caught on the grass. I had the bar ends on at the time. Caught on the grasses, and it kind of jarred me a little bit to the side. And I overcorrected or something, but my front wheel literally just rode off the side of this the ledge of the single track and I ride it on my road bike two or three times a week (laughs) (laughs) and I just maybe going 10 12 mile an hour I just flipped over the bars really quick hard landed on the back side of my helmet my shoulder I don't know if I kind of crashed front or back and I heard this cracking I one was the helmet and then the other was obviously my shoulder blade um, collarbone and I got up, I started to get up and I couldn't get up because I knocked the wind out of me. And I'm thinking, okay, it's a little before dark, not that late, and just catch your breath, get up, and you can get home. And I figured, I didn't know what had happened, I just thought I broke the helmet. And I went home and I left the bike in the yard and went upstairs to shower. And um, Emily comes in and she's calling for me, like, why is your bike in the yard, Mike? You know, and I come out of the shower and I could barely breathe. And I'm thinking, this is kind of strange. And. She goes, we're going to the emergency room. Well, we'll just go to Mount Morning. And she goes, she looks at me. She goes, get in the van. We're going to the emergency room. And it turns out I broke, I don't know, three or four ribs, broke collarbone and punctured a lung with the broken ribs. I mean, it's just such a benign crash. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, there's so many times that's, the, that's how it happens, right? Like you're, it's not something where you're, you're paying full attention and you're actually like in the, in the heat of the moment racing. It's more those, oppor- those things whenever you're just like, yeah, it was just something I've ridden a thousand times and you just take your attention away. Or like, the, like you said, the grass just, you know, of course you had bar ends on. Of course it did. <laughs> <laughs> it was a whole climb. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Hey. It, was, it was such a funny story though because they're like, you know, Closer's in the hospital. He punctured his lung on Davos. Yeah. Like, it's what? an uphill ride, dude. Yeah. <laughs> he must have been going for it. <laughs> right. Was yeah, he on, was was he on that thing. damn e-bike? I was <laughs> like, man, how does, right. how does this happen? Because I, I talked with you. I was like, the race was over. I talked with him after the race. He was fine. And yeah. then, um, you know, we all rode down Davos and, and did that little North Trail section mm-hmm. over there on the, right. uh, the West End. And then, yeah. Was, and, well, so I guess to Steve's question, is that, is that the worst injury you've ever sustained as far as like I, w- I would say, yeah, I've had um, broken ribs a few other times and mm-hmm. had some really horrific crashes. Uh, probably the worst crash I ever had was in, I mentioned the Mammoth stage race. So that was in late, what would that have been? Um, late 80s. I think it was probably 87 um, because it was before I went over to Europe and so forth. Anyway, uh, we did two or three stages and the last stage was the Kamikaze downhill. And so the morning, that morning before the race, they send you up the gun and you can preview it. And the sun was kind of low at that time. And I was coming down the, the ridge right off the 
the steep rocky part, you jump on the fire rug. And I just kind of relaxed my hands on the bars and I hit a water bar, didn't see it. And I'm doing 30 at least, I think. And I hit the water bar and my hands came off the handlebar. And all of a sudden I'm over the bars, my chest is on the handlebars, I'm staring, my nose basically rubbing on the front knobby. And I'm doing whatever again, 30 mile an hour, and I'm like, oh shit, I'm in trouble. And then the wheel just buckled under me sideways or whatever, you turn sideways. And I went flipping and flying and skidding through the, the granite gravel road, service road they have up there. And I, I don't think I had tights on, I might have. Um, not that they matter much. And I got up, I was just road Shoot rash up. galore. Just all up the leg, side, and hip, and arm, and I'm thinking, shit, I gotta go <laughs> clean up, clean up and come back up and do this race and get my final results. I, I put on, um, I think I put cellophane around my legs and threw tights on and around my arm and my ass so I wasn't bleeding through everything and went back up and did the race. And I mean, I guess you just gotta back, get back on the horse and ride, right? Um, but you but didn't break anything. Didn't break anything. No, didn't break anything. And there's another crash, and nobody would ever recall it, uh, know about it because it was in Crested Butte. It was another stage race, I think, and I was doing like the 401 trail or something, whatever they call it over there, and mm -hmm. flying down this trail, and I caught some rock or something, and I went flying over the bars, and I flew probably four or five feet before I hit this aspen tree. Um, but it was a small aspen tree, and now at this time, I'm literally upside down, my back and ass uh, wrapped up in this aspen tree. My bike's flying beside me, and I come to rest. The aspen tree bent over, and I come to rest on my feet, just like flipped up upside down on my feet, bike's bouncing beside me. I kind of shake myself off up and get up and grab the bike and ride away. Absolutely not a scratch or anything. <laughs> It could have been a different outcome, though. <laughs> yeah. the, the Aspen just just cushioned your fall, and oh, you could have just landed right back on the bike. And yeah, that. totally. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty much that. I yeah. mean, the bike, I don't even think the handlebars turned or anything. I just yeah. grabbed them and rode off. Well, I think there's so many of those. We have so many of those stories, you know, of like, oh, the crashes that could have been, mm. you know, really detrimental, and, and what, for whatever reason, they just, you, you kind of, get out of it unscathed but you know i think there's um that the injury aspect of it for so many people i think that's the question that i get a lot is like how, um, how you know mountain biking is so dangerous or or road cycling in general is is so dangerous mm -hmm. and with cars and, and crashes and um you know single track everything so um you get that question because if you're talking to a novice it just looks so daunting you know it looks so overwhelming with the the difficulty level and how fast you're going and you know, they don't quite grasp the fact that there's this learning curve and you've you've gone through that and yeah you've just kind of um able to to figure that out over the years and um but you know i think we we've all have those like close calls of like that could have been that could have been really bad so many when you look back and um i have to knock on wood because i certainly as many years as i've been out there exposing myself to this the stuff in these, in the trails and so forth. And I, I really haven't had that many crazy injuries or crashes. I mean, there's certainly been my, my share of crashes and, and so forth. But um, I still think about, you know, riding with all these different people I ride with and, you know, 
even Lance and George and all the locals and yourself here, Jake. And um, I, I want to get that adrenaline feeling when I'm going downhill. And yeah. now we got these bikes with four, six inches of travel, bigger, fatter tires, and, and the dropper post. I mean, all these new school trails and an old school, and I love the mix of them both because they offer different challenges. And like that section of Buffer Creek up there above our house, and it's this rocky, droppy trail. And I, I hope it never goes away because they talked about rerouting it, closing that, you know, mm -hmm. obliterating that section. I'm going to lobby for keeping it, as would Jay Henry and probably yourself yeah, and many others. Yeah. We, we need those kind of challenges to keep the excitement in it. Like Two Elk, I know if I go ride Two Elk, there's two or three sections that they're going to raise the hair on the back of your neck, you yeah. know, because yeah. you can crash, I have, and you can make it through, and, you know, okay, that's kind of what that's all about, getting that thrill. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've watched you pull yourself out of that creek drainage <laughs> once before <laughs> on two elk. But you're right. You know, I think that that's the thing is, you know, looking at where my daughter's generation is right now and how lucky she is to be growing up here. And even for us, you know, I mean, you've been here a lot longer than I have, but you know, for me being here in the Valley for 20 years and what was available to us 20 years ago compared to what's available now is just like, I mean, it's Disneyland, you know, with, with all these trails that go ride from, we live in Avon. So just coming right from our house, you know, right. like, um, She's just, she's got, you know, a mountain bike park going into Minturn. There's trails. Of course, you got Beaver Creek and then all the trails over in Avon. Yeah. Arrowhead. So, yeah, so all that stuff that's happening. But uh, you really, I think, have to, you have to maintain some of that rugged, you know, legit single track if mm. you want to have riders that have that challenge. Because, you know, there's all the trails over in Avon, like there's, there's not sections over there that are really, like you said, on a foreigners travel bike or even, or more it's, they're so capable that it's, it's almost dumbing down the trails to a point that it's just as fast mm -hmm. as you want to go. And I think that, you know, there's, there's something that really a, a skill that is only acquired by riding that technical, you know, chunky, rocky stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see it whenever our athletes go to the East coast and compete. For and sure. They get their butts kicked and it's it's not obviously it's not, you know, legs and lungs. It's it's it has nothing to do with Rudy, wet, rocky terrain. Yeah. And if you grow up riding that stuff, then yeah. you've got that that's just something that's ingrained, you know. Love that type of terrain. I mean yeah. it's always on the edge, right? Because yeah. you never know if that front wheel or whatever's gonna wash out or yeah. on a root or a rock and the mud and you right. know, just like but it's Well the original yeah. Endo Alley. I right. mean, Endo Alley was legit. Now right. you can ride it on a road bike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they rerouted that. I mean, it's, it's fun, but it's fun. Yeah. yeah. And it's more like they, it used to be just, yeah. you know, a 13 second downhill sec section. And now it's 22 second seconds or whatever. But it was a longer. 13 second section that most people had to walk. <laughs> right. And then here he comes on a one inch bike. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know. But, you know, there's... Um, there's that balance, as you say. Like, there's a lot of new school trails being built, and a lot of those new trails may be old school style for, say, Evercrisp. You know, there's, there's some berms and turns and such in there, and it's a wider platform that is built initially, and then it all narrows down as the vegetation grows in and deadfall and so forth that's left lay there. But, um, you know, we've got the two Elks, we've got the um, Lost Lake trails and, you know, stuff down here in the west end of the valley towards Edwards, you know, old A, A10, is it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, stuff like that. That's really fun to have that mix. And we're fortunate we do because 
So, uh, a guy I was riding with had some younger kid who come out from maybe Park City or whatever. It's like he takes him on like an old school, one of our old school trails, and they're like, "What? I just don't know how to handle this stuff, you know." And it's it's important, I think, as uh, to be a, if you want to be a balanced rider, you got to get out and experience that stuff. And for me, it's it's really fun to be able to mix it up. And once our our mountains and the high country opens up after the elk closures and the snow melts off, we have really a, a, a great variety of trails here. You know, even rode the other day, which is really technical kind of single track rocky. It reminds me of a bit of East Coast terrain. Is um, Whiskey Hill or Whiskey Creek off of um, Meadow Mountain? Oh, right yeah. that trail. Sure. You know the upper section. Mm-hmm. It's from yeah. the from the line shack line down. Line shack down. Yeah. yeah. I love that section. Yeah, right. And now you can tie in the new school Evercrest Trail, right? right? Yeah. So, yeah. Eco Challenge back. You're back. Winningest Eco Challenge racer ever? Uh, I've won three. Um, I think there's a couple others. uh, Maybe Keith Murray, John Howard um, have won three as well. Uh, Maybe Andrea Murray as well, Keith's uh, ex-wife. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but, um, yeah, I had a good run, for sure. And then it goes away. I mean, it was wildly popular. It's kind of like road cycling in the United States. We don't have anything for a while, and then, uh, yeah. and then it comes back. And you haven't done this for a long time. 17 years, I think, Eco was gone. But it's like an everyday thing for you, like Eco Challenge, everything in it. You do that every day for fun. I mean, you're not paddling across. More or less, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just regular life for you. Well, that's the great thing about living here in the Vale Valley. All these different sports uh, that we have to um, uh, tackle in a, an eco-challenge or an expedition adventure style race, uh, we have pretty much at our fingertips, you know, whether it's um, winter sports on snow. Uh, now, we don't have the big glaciers here, but, you know, there are some events where we'd be doing glacier travel, Patagonia, Europe, and um, New Zealand, and so forth. Uh, and I'm sure there's others that just don't come to mind. Uh, but we do have the, the rafting, the kayaking, the mountain biking, the navigation, orienteering, hiking, trekking. Um, we don't really have the coast steering, but we do have the canyoneering, which is traveling through canyons with ropes and whatever skills and tools, equipment you may need. Um, all these elements or components or activities are part of your typical expedition-style race. Now, certain environments or locales might have, you know, more of a desert or a jungle aspect, and then others may be more mountainous, uh, where, whether you're in Chile or Patagonia or, as I mentioned, in Europe or in the, the high mountains in Australia or New Zealand. Well, New Zealand, excuse me. Australia is more jungle and desert um, outback environment, but had the fortune of traveling around the world. A lot of it was with um, great friends and a lot of times with the family. My wife and my kids, we both, uh, we all spent two different years um, where we spent a block of time, um, Patagonia and New Zealand as a family. Kids were pretty young, but getting to experience that and um, really enjoy that kind of environment, you know, where we get out and do some family adventures. You know, we do rafting and uh, ducky river sections and hiking a lot. And um, 
I guess did we might have biked together in New Zealand. Uh, kids were pretty young there for that, though. But really, uh, a great time or phase in my life to to be able to go out and travel like that and brush up or learn skills in all these different sports I was mentioning that are activities that I hadn't really dabbled that much in because I was spending so much time on the bike, you know. Right. But it comes back. Yeah. And you come right. back. 17 years. Yeah. Like, now, I did have, I will say, there were... Uh, there were some, like, Primal Quest in yeah. there and some other things. The and then and so forth, yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was one of the things I was just looking up. Like, how, does, how does that timeline layout of Eco Challenge, Primal Quest, and now Eco Challenge is, is kind of come back? Back again. So, uh, as Eco Challenge took a hiatus, which mm -hmm. was, I think, in 2002, I think it was, the last one, which was held by coincidence in Fiji as well. Um, and after that, uh, Primal Quest kind of took the helm for the big expedition race. It had a lot of television coverage and sponsorship and big prize money. Uh, so Primal Quest kind of came along. And in conjunction with that, the Ray Gawa, which was really a predecessor, it's a French version of the Eco Challenge expedition race. Um, it was kind of mixed in there in that whole spell of Eco Challenge slash Primal Quest era. And they kind of morphed into uh, more of a, a world championship format event, which basically they reduced the size of it, uh, you know, from like seven to 14 days. It was cut down more like five or four to seven days type thing for the the faster teams anyway for the world championships yeah for the world championships and they kind of changed the format a little which uh, eco challenge actually adopted this last go around where they st started mandating rest or stopped hours so you had to take x amount of hours where you would um if you plan it right sleep mm -hmm. um not least, your specialty yeah give your body some rest <laughs> right uh, and then that way they could kind of guarantee a little bit more of a safety uh, or integrate a little bit more of a safety factor in it from an organizational perspective. Because the way it plays out, it, basically the clock starts when the gun goes off and clock stops when you fin cross the finish line. And you would typically to just figure out how you're going to strategize all your... Um, athletic or um, progress activities and try to fit some sleep in between there and you know teams would go for four or five days without sleeping and it's just beats you to death you know you're mentally fatigued you're seeing objects that you never aren't real would never imagine seeing you're calling for my case calling my teammates other names and thinking they're other people because you're half hallucinating and I've actually forewarned Gretchen and Josiah that that would probably happen <laughs> in Fiji. Gretchen Reeves and Josiah yeah. Midawal were two of my uh, three teammates, or two of my three other teammates on the team in Fiji this last year. And yeah, it's, um, you know, it's punishing because you're literally going at a high intense, high intensity effort or physical exertion for upwards of 20 plus hours a day. And that lasts for, a week or more at times in most of these races. Did you do you like the longer like when it was that seven to fourteen day format? Do you prefer that, or did you at the time prefer that over that shorter four to seven day format? 
Or did well, you not care? Just whatever, whatever they you know, you. You, you were given, you had to take what you were given, I guess, sure. for a course and so forth. And in these races, you're, you race as a team of four individuals primarily. They did have five in the Ray Goa back in the day. Uh, and it's usually always co-ed. So you have to have a, at least a, one or two of members of the opposite sex on your team. And we, uh, we ended up in Fiji. Um, I was hoping to race with um, one or more of my other teammates I raced with in the past, Michael Tobin being one of them, um, just because um, we had that experience, you know, together, racing together. And so um, with, uh, with this team, it worked out where I was able to get Josiah and Gretchen both to commit. And then uh, the fourth team member after Michael Tobin and John Jacoby, who I raced with in the past, an Australian guy, couldn't participate. Um, we got another Kiwi who's um, high, comes highly recommended to be our fourth racing team member. And then this year they added, or this past year, they added a fifth team member, which was a support staff. Um, Eco Challenge used to always be unsupported, as in like they would take your gearboxes for the different disciplines to different locations on the course. So you change from, for say, cycling to kayaking or kayaking to mountaineering or whatever. At a preset staged uh, transition. Yeah. Spot. So we had a fifth member, and he happened to be Neil Jones, who um, was the, on the winning team of the last Eco Challenge, which happened to be in Fiji, and it was our opposing Kiwi team members. Um, anyway, he was our support, and he, he was the lead navigator for their team, so he was really helpful with the maps and the transition areas for us this year, or this past year. And so we had a rock-solid team, and um, really excited to have raced with Gretchen and Josiah there and give them a feel of what the granddaddy of adventure racing was about. <laughs> Sure. As in granddaddy, I mean the, the race itself, not me. <laughs> <laughs> but you weren't the oldest guy out there. Uh, and age know. has never been like a deal with you. Well, Everyone always talks about, everybody talks about it but you. Well, I'd like to think so, but I think that or believe that. But uh, honestly, there's certainly the effects that you see as you age that um, I was thinking about it from the mountain games, the Teva Mountain Games this last year. Uh, I raced against all the different age groups, or age level of participants or competitors, including Josiah. And the format at that event last year played, helped play into my hands to be more of an equalizer to somebody like Josiah, who, um, you know, at what, he turned 41 last year? I think he's 42 now. Um, for me, he's 18 years younger than me. And if I could have those 18 years back, I think I could have been more of a raced on on more of a par level with him without the age group handicaps that were included in there but in the end um i th for the mountain games i think i deserved the win although you know it was um a little bittersweet because josiah was that much faster than me in so, some of the events in particular for say the mountain biking and and uh, the running up peppy's face <laughs> or any of the running events you know it just it's just so hard to recover to the same level um, that you could 15 or 20 years younger in age. Yeah. You might have that same ability that you did on one day, but you starting adding up, starting up those days and it's a different game. Did it feel different in Fiji this time? Well, for, 
Because you, I mean, you talked about you like you said guys don't sleep for four or five days. Yeah. You, you were one of those guys. Well, we typically as a team would try to bank sleep, as we call it, sleep a little bit early on to where you're more rested than the other teams out there that haven't slept for, say, 24, 36, 48 hours in. And so that would come play into your hands. Now, um, I was pretty good at handling that sleep deprivation, and I still probably am. But the thing that um, I found is, for say, Fiji has these hills on the bike. And they don't um, traverse around the hills. They just go straight up and straight down them. And I remember that from 17 years ago, how the terrain was. And I would, I would go into these hills on the bike, and I'd carry as much momentum down the hill and back up to the, the next hill and just shift through the gears. And when I'd run through the gears, I would just jump off the bike. And Josiah and Gretchen would just keep matching up these hills. But in the end, I was equally as fast because I would be able to save my legs a little bit because my legs just, that's the one thing I, I just find, like they just don't want to start um, uh, putting the power into them, like the wattage power into it. Like I can keep going and going, but I just didn't have the same power as I would have 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that I remember from, a, you know, six, eight years ago when I did my last uh, Adventure Racing World Championships, which I think down in Spain. I remember that kind of feeling in the leg, to, and it came back there, but... Fortunately, in a race like that, it doesn't really matter. You just, you know, you learn to balance it all out. Have you, like, ever been tested for it? Like, test today. What's your, what's your, uh, your FCP? Threshold. Like, yeah, you, 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 you know, your threshold 20 years ago was 310, and now it's 300? No, I honestly haven't. Um, but back then, when, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we, or 20, whatever it was, I, was tested down at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs a lot because uh, I was on uh, the U.S. national team at that elite level in the sense that they wanted to um, provide this um, service or training facility and, um, and so forth in Colorado Springs. So I'd be testing down there a bit. And then in between that, it was pretty much all heart rate monitor for me. We didn't have the accessibility to the power meters that we do now. So... I'm spending a lot more time with a power meter on my bike now than I, I never had back in those days. So um, I would have to go into a lab or, you know, compare maybe the power meter from the lab days then to on the bike now. Right. But I haven't actually, so. How but did I'm sure you, it's less. How did you structure your training, you know, whenever, because um, heart rate was even kind of, I mean, if you started your, your elite career, racing career, in the mid eighties, I mean, heart rate was just now just starting to come along. And mm -hmm. then the, then the heart rate monitors started becoming more mainstream and then power meters started coming along. But, um, were you one of those guys that just would go off a of feel and, and just, or, or were you just always, if there was a workout to do, you just pinned it. And then like, how did you structure that? When I first started, I just, I didn't have any structure. Yeah. I just rode hard out of the gate until I got to the, back to the house, right, yeah. uh, or the finish line if it was a race. Uh, then I started to focus more where my racing was. Um, my training was my through races. Mm -hmm. A lot of my intensity was done through local races or smaller races. Uh, and then we'd do like the win what was it, Wednesday night ride, I think we had every week, and we always would go out and 
beat each other up a bit, you know, whether it was even Josiah. Josiah was a young kid at that time. I say young. He was 18 or 19, I think, when he first moved to town. He may have been 20, I don't know. But he was in those rides occasionally, and then Chris Doyle's and Mike Janelle's and, and yourself. I think you wrote some of those, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. So um, those were always kind of my intensity days. And yep. then I'd be racing two to three days a week, uh, you know, because we did a lot of stage racing or travel to nationals, and they might be one or two stages and – you know, because they do a hill climb or a time trial and then a circuit race or whatever it might yeah. be, so cross-country race. But um, I would always race with a mo heart monitor on, mm -hmm. so I could compare um, my training efforts to my racing efforts, although I always found that my racing efforts, I could, you know, my heart rate was always on the lower spectrum, so I could compare it, but there would be, you know, five-beat difference for, say, of the same intensity, and maybe that's just all feel perspective and it was always, the effort was always the same, but it felt harder on a, uh, on a training outing than it did racing, per se. Yeah. Was there anything specific that you did? So when you're, when you're racing, you know, consistently doing these stage races, you know, where you're doing multiple stages in a weekend or, you know, uh, multiple stages day after day, but, you know, you're sleeping in between, you're, you're staying in a hotel or you're doing some kind of, you know, um, you, it's not like you were saying, just from like multiple days the gun goes off and then your finish line is when you end when you shifted from those like multi-day state races or, or the one-day cross-country events to this adventure racing format where you were you were going for you know 20 hours at a time before you took a break or, or more um you know and i know you did the um the i did a bike Mm -hmm. um, and that was some, Alaska. somehow you, you put that into in between your, your cross country world championship. And, and so you're racing these one day cross country races and then you go and do this. I did a bike, uh, in Alaska, but, um, was there something you were specifically doing as far as like training that sleep deprivation or did you just say, I'm just going to go and read my body and, and take a break when I feel like I need one. So it's kind of two different things here, I guess, in a sense, because bike racing is quite significantly different than, for say, adventure racing when you mix in all those sports and the durations. But for, say, the yeah, I did a bike, as you mentioned. Um, that one, when it started out, you did have a sleep deprivation factor, but they, when I first did it, they had a six-hour mandatory stop at a, a halfway point, so you could rest up there. How long was that race? Um, that was about a hundred, I think we did 160 or 180 miles back in the day when I was doing it. They did change a little bit f from the first year to the fourth year that I raced in it. Well, I think we did a little longer because they rerouted something, mm -hmm. uh, di different start or finish. I, I can't remember. Um, but that one was, um, I think it was around 18 hours or something like that. Okay. So not outrageous. Maybe it was more 20-ish plus, yeah. but, um, it wasn't, uh, the format that I think they carried into the le if it's still even going on, I'm not sure. It is, yeah. They they do it now. I Nonstop. Think, I think Rebecca Rush. Rush won it last year, and it was oh, like three hundred and something miles. Oh yeah, they're doing the, the more of the epic one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Thankfully, I didn't have to race in that one. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I think going back to your question there, um, there was a lot of difference in that whole vent mountain biking to adventure racing uh, efforts and sleep deprivation and. And the sleep deprivation, we never really tried to train for because it just runs you, wears you down and so forth. You just have to deal with it on, 
on the day or the week, whatever it might be in this case. Uh, but uh, I also think I kind of averted your question earlier about which races I preferred more, uh, did more of. I really enjoyed some of the smaller sprints type races or the 24-hour races they used to do in adventure racing. So a sprint was around three to five or six hours. And a 24-hour race usually took the winning teams like 12 to 20 hours. And so those were kind of nice. And then there was always this kind of mix in between the, the short 24-hour races or shorter 24-hour races to the expedition races, which was a stage race format. So some of these races they would have, in particularly in, say, Asia or China, um, where you would do a three- to five-day race that was um, just every day they have a shorter six- to 12-hour adventure race. And then you would go back to the hotel and rejuvenate and clean up the bikes and yourself and get some rest. And then the next day you'd do it all over again. And then was the overall winner was the accumulative time. Mm -hmm. So those were quite good as well. And uh, often it was good prize purses. And they were always a good build up for the bigger expedition races because you could work on your skills, whether it was um, the different disciplines you're doing or your, um, your skills to... Uh, improve your fitness for the bigger, longer races for right. some. Yeah. Well, you know, I look at it as, you know, right now we're in this era and, and it's the ultra endurance stuff is just hyper competitive. It's, it's very much becoming the, um, the point of focus for a lot of athletes, whether that's ultra endurance running, you know, hundred milers are now like the new marathon, right? right? I mean, so many people go out and do a hundred mile race in a year as opposed to, you know, that used to be like, oh yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to do Boston or right. um, New York marathon. And, and then now that's being pushed, that limit's being pushed up to, you know, 250. Nice. I mean, I just saw Courtney Dowalter's post this morning that says she's going to go do the whole Colorado trail. So she's going to, it's a 500, essentially a 500 mile and she's going to do it all in one push, you know, um, Try to set the FKT? Yeah, I mean, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's um, so, and then, you know, you've got like the Continental Divide or the Tour Divide route, right? The, the bikepacking stuff. And I, per, I just got back from a, a seven-day bikepacking oh, uh, ride. And we weren't racing. We were just doing it to, to experience it, right? And so we did the Colorado section north to south wow. on, uh, following the Tour Divide. Um, and it was great. We had a great time. Um, but if you're one of those folks that's actually looking for that FKT or, or to be competitive, that's the big limiter or the big uh, difference maker is that, you know, the, the guys that are going to win those things, they're going to go for two days without any sleep, sleep for 20 minutes, ride for another 20 hours, you know, sleep for 15 minutes, and then just keep that on. And, um, you know, so I look at like the adventure racing that, that you were doing in the early 2000s and, and really see that as, because we had never really seen anything like that. It was more, you know, Ironman was a thing, right? Like you could do triathlon, you could do three sports at once and you, you know, you, maybe it takes you six or eight hours to complete it. Um, uh, so, you know, then that's transitioned into all of a sudden this uh, adventure race format comes along Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, well, this is multiple days. It's multiple disciplines, you know, the orienteering, the, the rock climbing, the uh, mountain bike, the running, all of it, the kayaking mm -hmm. and everything. So, um, so really it's like the, the, the real man's decathlon, you know what I mean? It's like the most, um, it's, it's all these different sports. 
but it's also kind of the predecessor to this, like, or, or the, like you were saying before, like the granddaddy of all these ultra endurance events, you know. And I think that you're, you know, arguably the most accomplished um, racer in in you know, athlete in those races, um, you know, with four four world championships, um, you know, the, all the eco wins, all the um, primal quest. Yeah, and and so you know, I think that. I, put my, I try to put myself in your situation and say, all right, all right, here's where you are now in your career and you're going back and doing this um, kind of a reunion, right? Like this, mm. this race again and a lot of the same Pretty people. Pretty much so, yeah. yeah. A lot of the same old, old competitors or rivals yeah. we saw out there for sure. Yeah, and, and to, to look at where things have progressed, um, you know, with nutrition and science and training and, and everything over the last, you know, 20 years, um, you know, is there anything that you see available now that wasn't available to you, you know, 15, 20 years ago that you feel like would be important or, or critical to implement as, as an athlete into your training or into your prep uh, that, that would make a big difference in the way you perform? Or is it something that you just feel like um, you just got to come up with the goods on the day? Well, if you're speaking more towards the the normal competition, bike racing, trail running, or something of that nature, uh, that's certainly different than if you're looking at, you know, expedition-style adventure racing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's def definitely things that have come along over the last couple decades that would um, certainly change my approach to the cycling, or say, I did a bit of trail running, and had to some good results, whether it was Imogene or um, Pikes Peak or some other stuff locally and so forth. Um, I would definitely change some things up there with nutrition probably and then also my approach and training to them uh, with, you know, with the advent of heart rate, or excuse me, the power meters and so forth. And then, you know, now I think you guys have your programs here that you can become much more sophisticated with your training and I also would have looked, looking back, I would have paid much more attention to my overall body weight to increase my um, power to weight ratio. What do they call it in the watts to? Watts per kilogram. Watts per kilogram, thank you. Uh, I think that looking back, I, I probably missed the boat there. Uh, I could have probably been a reasonably better climber had I had a better, um, paid more attention to the weight factor, mm -hmm. which came into that. You know, when you look at it, it's like, mm. well, you know, obviously you're dealing with different conditions with mountain bike, whether it's the terrain you're on or the weight of the bikes and so forth. But we're all pretty competitive weights with our bikes. But anyway, I would have looked at that. And then if you're looking at adventure racing, uh, things really didn't change a lot for our approach going into Eco Challenge um, about nutrition, for say, and, and so forth. I actually had... Uh, fairly lean last summer just doing so much different stuff I had to really focus on um, per Josiah's recommendation <laughs> as well putting some weight on going into eco challenge because you you need that extra um, calories to calories and body fat to just be able to burn because you're going to burn it off and you just become very depleted in those long stage races and you can't put enough calories in when you're going 20 hours a day or more uh, so I tried to build up a little for that but um, ultimately, I think I would use the 
the new technology that we just discussed with the power meters and the training um, approach that uh, coaches like yourself and others have out there in Josiah, you know, you got that experience, you got the physiology knowledge of all the health and uh, nutrition and um, all those components that are elements that play into peak performance. And then those other elements that are there on those adventure races, you know, like the orienteering and like the, um, the ropes sections and, and everything, is that just, you feel like that's just experience? You just got to put yourself in those situations and learn as much as you can about those elements? There's, you know, first off, I always like to say orienteering or navigation is the great equalizer. In these events you can put all the speed and energy into to going fast um, but if you aren't going in the right direction <laughs> it doesn't help Is, and, 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 and same for this one yes yeah absolutely and so Josiah and I actually because I knew I needed to go out and brush up on my map and compass skills because now I use my um, Gaia GPS, GPS or yeah. Gaia app or my regular Garmin GPS and so forth and it's just a big crutch that you can fall back onto. And, and these things, you don't have that ability. It's strictly map and compass. So oh, okay. we tried to go out and work on that quite a bit. And, I, you know, humbled as it may be, as always, you know, whether it's in the race or in training, certain things just come into play. And there's always these variables with the maps and, and your skills with them and the, whether these roads or trails are on the map because they're older or... Um, they're not, ju they just aren't there, you know? And so you kind of got to read into the terrain more and your distance, tra speed of travel and so forth with the navigation. So that's always a big factor. And then um, what was the other part of the question with uh, regards to uh, skills? So yeah. we had to, um, you know, definitely go out and work on our skills. So I have more background in rope skills, whether it's ascending or repelling on ropes on cliff faces and so forth than Josiah and Gretchen do. So we went out several times and worked on that. Um, and that was a big factor in Eco Challenge was this, there was a huge rock face that was many, numerous pitches of ascending. And um, thankfully we had gone out and worked on those with Gretchen and Josiah and myself and, and Gordon Townsend, our fourth teammate, you know, he had a good skill with that. Um, but yeah, you, you need to have those skills and you need to brush up on them. And and uh, we also spent time uh, rafting and used uh, Gretchen's uh, boyfriend's skills, uh, Kurt. Yeah. And Kurt Kensel helped us in the rafting section. And, and then uh, one of Gretchen's friends helped us in the ropes. And then we spent time in the canoe um, just trying to mimic uh, some of the paddling we'd be doing out in the ocean, uh, canoes and so forth in Fiji. And, and using those river guiding skills or uh, raft guiding skills and techniques to brush up because there was the best part of eco challenge in my mind was the river section this last uh, last year um, we we're in a really fun uh, rather technical rafting section for several hours and they literally out of the gates they hand you this plastic coated map so hand drawn saying here's this rapid that rapid and what class are going to be and how you should go through it and so you're i think they call it um reading as you run the river, you know, and mm -hmm. you're like, okay, this is coming up. We're going to have to be right here, left there, and then there's a drop here, and, you know, we might have to maneuver in high side and all this sort of stuff, and so it was pretty exciting, and I got to be the uh, the head steersman, I guess you might say, in the raft because I had a little more experience than the other members of the team, but um, two of us in the back, so I could, uh, I think I bumped, uh, bumped uh, some of the 
steering maneuvers off to Gordon on the left side and I was on the right side, but mm -hmm. generally handling the, the rafting direction and so forth. But great fun and you know, back to your question, yeah, it certainly helps to brush up on your skills. Because you guys end. didn't have a lot of time to prepare for this. Not a ton, really just a couple months leading up to it. So we crammed a, a lot, lot in, yeah. We put a big bike hiking backpacking trip from Vail to Aspen my yeah. wife Emily and I do every year and so I got Gretchen decided to join in on that and loaded them all down with all the gear <laughs> <laughs> try to get your body ready for some of that right I mean do you feel like this is um, something that's gonna make a rebirth that's gonna start to are they are they trying to put some some momentum behind bringing this back so it's a, a yearly thing or a, a competitive uh, circuit to follow yeah so Obviously, COVID threw a wrench in everything, right? So all those smaller events that you see had seen um, going on for the decade or two that the big, you know, big adventure races like Eco Challenge and Primal Quest had left this void for, they were all there. And then this year, the, the, they basically all got shut down. Mm -hmm. Eco Challenge is in that same boat. I think Eco Challenge would have been back this fall and probably in South America, I'm not sure where exactly, but they talked about being a mountainous terrain, and I know they're scouting the the um, Patagonia Range in, in Chile and oh, wow. so forth and that. Uh, now, whether that's where it would have ended up, I'm not sure, but um, so Primal or Eco Challenge got a big boost with um, two things. One, Mark Burnett, who's the founder of Eco Challenge and, uh, and Survivor and Apprentice and uh, what do they have, The Voice and a number of other, um, I think they're actually Shark Tank as well. So Mark Burnett's behind all that, and he's got big uh, connections within the television industry. And uh, now they brought on, they, uh, Mark Burnett, brought on Bear Grylls, who'd been bugging Mark Burnett, who's Bear Grylls, his Man Against Wild, I think it was. Right. A very popular program to many different viewers around, around the globe. So he's now the host of the program kind of taking over where Mark left off a little bit, but I think he's actually also going to be commentating. So they've had the likes of um, Liam Nielsen um, commentate some of the Eco Challenges and other big name you know, voices you might recommend, uh, recognize. Excuse me. So Bear's going to be behind that, but what Bear brings to it as well as what Amazon brings to it is Amazon is the big money behind it, and they have MGM with it, and then they have their Amazon, Amazon Prime network, which is where the program is going to be aired, and it's actually only a couple of weeks out now. Uh, so middle of August, they're going to air it, launch it on Amazon Prime. So they've been doing some promotional trailers and teasers on social media and some on television as well. I haven't actually seen the television versions of it yet, but yeah. uh, Bear Grylls being behind it is going to bring a, bring a big audience to it. And so uh, where I think it's headed down the road, and um, directing to your question is, I think you'll see Eco Challenge back if Amazon gets the viewership interest that they're really after mm -hmm. or hoping for. And I think they will. Yeah. If they promote it properly, I think it's going to be a pretty pretty intense program. We've watched some of the trailers. They had like 50 camera crews out there wow. in this event and over 100,000 hours of footage to edit through to put together this 10-segment um, miniseries, which I think is going to be like an hour-long each segment on Amazon Prime. Well, yeah, I guess my, to my point, I think that the, the ultra-endurance world is, is ripe for this type of, of thing. You know, like people love to watch these inspirational 
you know, adventures or these mm -hmm. inspirational races and, and see that, oh, that's a thing that's possible now. So what am I going to do on my, you know, weekend warrior uh, opportunity when I get out to, to go challenge myself, you mm -hmm. know, and, and whether, of course we always, you know, kind of dumb that down for ourselves and, and figure out, well, I can't recreate that, but I can go and, and try this, you know, um, like you're saying, compass and, and map skills or, mm -hmm. um, and I think that, um, yeah, if, if it gets the viewership and, it, and you can, uh, and, and people get, it gets in front of enough people, I think you're going to see a, a little bit of a resurgence with this. Cause I think that, you know, in the heyday, right. When you guys were or doing the primal quest and the eco challenge and, and you guys were doing that, um, mm -hmm. that was kind of your full-time deal. Yeah. Um, right. you know, so, I mean, it would have to be like, again, to stay, to stay sharp on all of those elements, you have to be doing them all, all the time. Yeah, you, you really do. And that's what, for us was really good was there was a lot of different events. Like I mentioned, the Balance Bar Series and Primal Quest and the Ray Goa and the races in China and the Eco Challenge and so forth. We had a lot to play off. And so we were all just kind of looking at the calendar, which ones do we want to pick and choose to compete in and use for preparation for the other ones that might be more important and where the money was and so forth mm -hmm. and what the sponsors might be interested in and so forth. So um, the I think you're going to see with what's happened with COVID and all the, the people, whether it's the viewers or the participants, having these voids or this big void from what's happened this year and was, I think, obviously going to carry on into next spring, the way things are looking with yeah. this whole uh, virus and so forth. So um, I think once the things do get back to more of a normal, Settle, you're yeah. going to see a lot of interest. You'll probably see, especially if this viewership of Eco Challenge sparks uh, interest, interest from um, curious onlookers and, and people. Like, think about um, sidetracking here a little bit, what Tough Mudder and these guys were doing, Spartan games mm -hmm. and Spartan races and all that. They brought all these people in that were looking for something to do and um, you know, it was an easy way to get out and do something. It didn't have to be um, they, they didn't have to be these elite level athletes. They could go out and participate. And the same is to be said with these adventure races. You know, mm -hmm. you can go out and have fun and you don't have to be the best at the game in that sport or all those multitude of sports in this case. So uh, to go out and be a participant and have fun and so forth. And I think we're going to see that with uh, this come back. I really do. I think you're going to see more grassroots events and hopefully more of the big events like Eco Challenge back. And that's why I think gravel racing has taken off so, so well, mm -hmm. um, is because it's that entry point, it's that easy entry point for folks to get into cycling or to try this event. You know, it is the, the modern marathon, you know, mm -hmm. of, um, yeah, there's five or 10% of the folks that are actually there in that field that are racing for the win. Um, but 90, 90 to 95% of the rest of the field is there to challenge themselves and, and um, they're just seeing if they can complete the distance. It's them against the course as more so than it is against them against any other the competitors. Sure. You know, and I think you're right. I think it's um, people, for whatever reason, our human nature is, um, is that to be, to challenge ourselves, you know? And I don't know, I mean, I've had that conversation with a couple of different folks about, and thought about it myself a lot of, you know, is that something that's, hereditary is it is it genetic in us as humans to 
because it's not in everybody, obviously, right. right? Like there's, it's like we live here in the mountains and there's a lot of people that live, thrive in the city, you know? And I think that there's, there's these two different types of, of, um, of people that are, you know, in this like hunter gatherer world of, of evolution, mm -hmm. you know, you have the scouts that would go out and, and, you know, either hunt the food or be exploring right in the, in the nomadic, um, tribes and then you have people that would stay back and and like tend to the camp or um you know were more of those kind of homebodies that still had important roles but um you know is that something that's that's in like genetic in our in our dna or do you think that that's um uh, just something that we certain people just have that draw to to find that adventure and seek that challenge personal challenge I'm sure there's some of that DNA genetics involved in it, but a lot of it, like going back to what I said in moving to Colorado, I think uh, a lot of what inspired me was just the surroundings. You know, what we have here in those, in those surroundings is also the people out doing all that they do. And so we have, um, we have a lot here at our fingertips. And what I really have to say I noticed, and I think... I think it's going to carry over is there were so many more people out and about just walking and, and skiing and biking once they could get out the doors or even during this kind of lockdown because they couldn't go to work, they couldn't drive across the country, couldn't fly to Europe, they couldn't do all these things that they're used to do, used to be doing. They started to become more active where and when they could. Now, we were very fortunate here. We weren't locked down in New York City or for say Chicago or something like that where you just didn't have uh, as much access to the great outdoors but um, I think it's it's um, it may be a good thing for us all as a society to see that there's more healthy lifestyle activities and healthy lifestyle from people being cooped up mm -hmm. simply cooped up well you talk to any of the bike shops you know and they're just they're just selling everything they've got as far as bikes go and as far as, um, you know, w they can't get can't, enough You can't bikes. even buy a bike. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, can, you can't get 26-inch tires now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I got a few. <laughs> well, and I was, riding you know, riding yeah. up Vail Mountain the other day, and I haven't seen that many 26-inch wheel bikes since 2003. You know, or maybe 2006, whenever two right. miners were really starting to take off, and um, you know now they're you coming know, back. By yeah. the way, okay, Steve. <laughs> Orbea next year bringing back the 26 for as, kids' bikes as they should. I can't. There are lots of people that it. can't ride a 20. If you're five foot, you can't ride a 29er. Linda doesn't like a 29. No, she's no. she's on a 27.5 and she loves it. Yeah, I'm I don't think, I don't know if she wouldn't be on a 26 inch wheel bike, but she's also five four. You're six four yeah but four. i'm still riding my my closer giant anthem 26 inch <laughs> mountain bike there you go yeah. i i truly believe that somebody like 29er came out with a 29 bike right yeah. that somebody should come out with a 26er for that genre genre there's yeah because people that want that it's going to yeah. be short-lived probably because they're going to grow out of them mm -hmm. but it's a natural evolution because our kids grew from like 20 inch to 26 and I put uh, I had 26 inch frames and disc brakes so I could switch out wheels and still have the same frame for them but you know they kind of grew grew into it versus 
you look at these kids that ride around on like their parents' bikes, yeah. and they were like on unicycles, or not unicycles, but what are these old school bikes? That Petty you farthing. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Do you ride a 29er? Mm -hmm. I'm, I still have 27ers, and I got rid of all my 26ers, but um, not that I wouldn't go back. I, I, I do love them, but I think I'll stick with the, the combination of 29, 27.5. Are you going to keep, if the Eco Challenge Primal Quest continues are you going to keep racing uh considering last year's event i would like to uh, entertain the idea of going back to uh, a mountainous area and competing more in my element uh or our elements if um gretchen and josiah would come back out i'd love to drag michael tobin back out and have a, a really rock solid team and get michael and myself back in the in the grasp of the map and compass skills and have Josiah's skills uh, mold into all that. It, with it, it sounds like there's unfinished business. After this most recent Fiji, I know you can't tell us the spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like talking to, to Sutter midway through The Bachelor. <laughs> so you do marry the girl or what? Yeah, what you happens know? here? Uh, there's some unfinished. I, I, I feel like in your talk, you, you, you think you... You could say so. Yeah. You could yeah. say so. I wouldn't argue that fact. Yeah. So that, I, got, I got to go back to this uh, technology element of progression with, within the cycling culture. Because one of the things that I was looking about, Steve and I were chatting about this the other day, is you were one of the first, you and I think Herbold were one of the first riders to take a, a thummy index shifter and flip it mm -hmm. upside down and start using it in what is now considered a modern shifter placement mm -hmm. for a mountain bike. I was like 30 years ago. <laughs> Everybody who shifts a mountain bike and uses their thumb has you to thank for that. They can, actually. Um, and if we still had bar ends, they could thank me for that, too. But I still have bar ends. I'm, I'm, sure, you <laughs> I'm sure you do. But anyway, uh, this, this isn't crackling in your ear, is it? Not much, no. Okay. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, the shifting thing, there's a few other things evolved with that. Um, but, um, yeah, it was just natural. Why put your thumb above the bar to shift when it's naturally underneath the bar? Mm -hmm. um, so why wouldn't you continue to, or why wouldn't you put the shift where it's more practical? And so Shimano really latched on that because I was actually um, racing on Shimano components at that time, and so we were sponsored through our team. And I became one of their R&D guys, along with Herbal and a few others. Because uh, so there's really Shimano and, and Suntour were the top two at that time. And right. Campy was in the mix. Yeah, and Campy was briefly in the mix. Mm -hmm. And they decided that they were going to stick to the road side of things, mm -hmm. which made sense because they didn't really put the energy into the off-road as they should have. But then SRAM came on board. And so SRAM kind of evolving to the from the three chain rings up front to two by chain rings. And Tom Ritchie was a big proponent of that. Um, he was always dabbling in that stuff. And then now to the single um, chain ring up front, which is one by driving. It's so practical, as we all know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just it makes so much sense. You can, as I say, stupid shift all day long. You don't have to worry about jamming chain rings. And now with the clutched rear derailleurs, the chain isn't slapping around and flopping and like it used to. But there's a few other things that, you know, as athletes, we were all – part of the evolution, and when I say that as athletes, sponsored athletes on, on these teams, 
uh, you know, the clipless pedals, uh, dual-sided clipless pedals, um, the one by, as I mentioned, the suspension, and now all the electronic shifting. And I think that, you know, Shimano was kind of in the forefront with their electronic shifting on the road, I think, before they went to the mountain bike. And, and uh, then SRAM made a big leap forward with their Bluetooth wireless shifting. And so they became on par, and they were kind of the the uh, leaders in the one-by charge, and Shimano has followed suit. And then now with the cog sets in the back, you know, they went to a 10-tooth in the back. SRAM did, I think, before Shimano. And then a 50, so they could accommodate a smaller chain ring and it still have a good gear range throughout with uh, one-by chain rings up front. And then Shimano went to a 51-tooth cog in the back. Now SRAM has got a 52-tooth, which right. I'm hoping to be riding here in a week or two. <laughs> so yeah. it's always somebody one-upping each other, which is what is it's about in life competition brings out the best in everything and everybody yeah well yeah and and you know i think that that for me as an athlete and and my involvement with different partnerships over the years with with uh, manufacturers and that's been honestly one of the most um i guess f for lack of a better word just fulfilling elements of, of my racing career and everything is just that ability to have that relationship and take something that is um, pre-production and give them feedback and say, hey, this is, I like this, keep this, get rid of that. And then to see that product come to market and, and then see people out on that product and then, then watch Absolutely. that snowball. You know, for me, that's been one of the most enjoyable parts of, of being, quote, unquote, a sponsored racer, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, um, and I was just kind of digging into these early 90s bikes that you guys were on and, and looking at the setups, you know. And like you were saying, it was like this friction shifter on top. And then, you know, then all of a sudden you see them switch. And I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. But how does – did you have to take – so the right is we for would the rear. Put it on the left. You would put the rear shifter on the left. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much of a learning curve was that? Not at all, or just went straight to it. Like yeah. I had for a while. Funny, I had on my road bikes. I had Shimano cable. I had SRAM electronic. I had Campy. I want one of my bikes up in Michigan. Campy um, shifters on the front, um, and then I had SRAM double tap. So I had four different road bike setups. They all shift different. They all shift different, but you just kind of get used to it. I still miss shift occasionally going from, like, one to the other. And then with the mountain That's bikes. That's when Emily attacks is whenever yeah, you miss exactly. shift. She's waiting, for, waiting to hear that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there he goes. There he goes. Yeah. And then you got, uh, well, the, the whole evolution, you're talking about brakes. You know, we mm -hmm. went from rim brakes to disc brakes on the mountain bikes, and now it's really transferring over into the road. We went from the cable um, mechanical shifting now to the electronic shifting, and then we have the suspension evolution, obviously, and we have the um, what was I? Oh, the dropper seat post. For me, that's like one of the greatest um, evolutions. Now we had something like that 20 years ago in the height right, height right, you right. know, and yeah. things like that. But nobody ever really adopted into it, right? And now, like I, th I believe what Tommy Thomas Frischnack, we call him Frischy, um, said to one of the other pros. I think he might have said to Hincapie, um 
down at the Cape Epic a few years back. Like if he had to make a choice between a dropper seat post and a rear suspension on a bike, he'd potentially go with a dropper seat post. Mm -hmm. And I am such a proponent of those now. I've got them on all of our bikes between my wife's and daughters and myself and, and your uh, new gravel my bike. daughter and so forth. Um, yeah, my new gravel bike. Gravel e-bike. <laughs> Did I mention e-bike? We're going to edit that part out. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And this... The handling of the bike. I can't believe we raced for all those years like we did. Even the downhill we talked about in Durango. Yeah. I did not have a dropper seat post. Yeah. Nobody did then. And if we did, who knows how much faster we might Three have seconds at least. At least. <laughs> Would have made all the difference. Well, so is that something that like you just touched on something a minute ago of the, um, the benefits of competition, right? So, you know, that some of the, the best innovations, obviously, the, Innovations. I mean, it, we watched that movie during lockdown, that Ford versus Ferrari. Oh, right. right? Awesome. What a great movie, right? So cool. Um, and now my daughter has this love of Ford. Shelby's, yeah. you know. So um, You go, girl. Yeah. So, you know, you, you look at that innovation, and it all comes from competition. So, and you, knowing you as long as I have, and being, having lined up with you, you know, elbow to elbow a few times, and, and just riding just casually, you know, out on a, a long, you know, July 4th ride, there's a level of competitiveness that's just in you, you know, and, um, and I see it in your family members, you know, as well. And what, what is the big value of that, that you feel like if, you know, cause, cause some people are, are content just kind of laying back and just taking life as it comes and saying, well, you know, um, if it's supposed to be, it'll be versus someone that's hyper competitive and, and just focused to, to drive for what they, they, to, to squeeze every little, um, drop out of life. I mean, do you feel like there's a balance with that or do you feel like, I guess more, more pointed to, to you specifically, where do you feel like you lie with that? And do you feel like that's something that you have ever had to rein in or do you feel like that's something that um, has always served you well i i can't say for my years back in iowa um how competitive i was we always played sandlot sports and i always wanted to play and win right so maybe you grew up with uh, nine siblings yeah 10 kids in 10 our family kids. so um so it's got to be competitive at that point. Yeah, right. You had a whole you know, baseball just for the food you had a baseball <laughs> team had a baseball team right <laughs> on your at your house <laughs> at the kitchen table right um, so there probably was that from the early days, and um, I think it evolved as I started ski, skiing competitively and then running uh, the various races and then cycling and so forth, as we talked about earlier. But um, I could probably find a better balance in life with that, you know, but I, I don't think I was ever as intense as you know, the Jordans and the Armstrongs and, and so forth in the world. that The win-at-all-cost yeah, mentality. Like, um, maybe I could have had more of that and won more. I don't know. <laughs> but I do think I carried a lot of it over into the adventure racing. My teammates would always speak highly about, uh, speak a lot about that. I don't know if it was always highly. <laughs> um, you know, the competitive drive there, which maybe, maybe helped us a lot in our successes that, you know, you've you got to believe in yourself and, 
and push to the very end because you never know what's going to happen. And that could always be said, could be said for many of these other sports, you know. Like, I always felt like my race wasn't over until I crossed that finish line. Sure. You know, you can't give up on that last 10 meters of a sprint or whatever it may be. Or you can't think, okay, we've got this one and, and all of a sudden something's going to happen because you let your guard down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the Jordans and the Armstrongs stopped at some point. You, you haven't. It's still in there. You, uh, Jordan put him on a golf course, right? And mm. you know it's going to be there. And Armstrong, he's still as competitive ever on a bike. That guy, um, like, part of the reason I'm not a big Strava um, user, I just kind of want to bring it back a little bit and enjoy a little more of what I can out there. But... You know, we still do um, hard efforts on Monday nights on the climbs or somebody pushes on the skis or um, whatever it may be, running or something like that. I'm still going to, you know, dig a little deeper to try to bring a little more out because it still may be there. But um, like I said, on the uh, downhilling on skiing or something like that, I love going hard and fast, but I, I don't make it in my everyday, um, you know, goal or something like that but on the mountain bike I still find I want to I want to push it to that level maybe not to where I'm going to crash but there's still that chance there because I want to have that uh, adrenaline feel on the mountain bike of that technical riding skills and that's just part of it, part of me I guess yeah well I, I get this question fairly often with everything that's going on with pretty much every event you know cross seasons all but canceled Every event this summer has been pretty much canceled, mm -hmm. except for you know some of the local stuff, and and I'm kind of opting out of it. I'm not really, uh, I haven't done any of the local races yet, um, um, and not for any reason other than just, just kind of I've decided to take a break, you know. Yeah, sure. and, um, and and for me, it's opened up this opportunity to do some other things, to do this bikepacking type thing, and um, and and take some time. But, you know, looking back, it's like, yeah, I was talking with Linda about it. It's like, I haven't taken, or, or the summer racing schedule or fall racing schedule has dictated my summer of travel and, and you know, our family activities since Can only 2004, right? So, sure. um, and I'm sure you're in the, a similar place. And, um, but I'm enjoying the break. And I'm, but I'm not that, it's not that I'm uh, not competitive. Sure. Or I've completely lost that competitiveness. But, um, but it's there in a different way. Like you were saying, you know, we were doing this bikepacking trip and we're all just, just three of us, you know, that were out there just getting it done, just riding big days, not, not pushing, you know, 20 hours or anything like that, but just riding for seven and a half, eight hours a day, mm -hmm. getting to a point, camping, and then packing up and, and doing it again the next day. And, um, yeah, you hit some of these climbs and you're like, okay, this is kind of wind it up here and just see how the legs respond and right. you know we're five days into this and and you know how are, how are things going and you know you having that camaraderie with your your buddies to to kind of push you a little bit and like okay i'm going to push it a little bit and he's right there still and and still not going away and um yeah there's there's that little bit of of fire there you know and and i think that um f for me personally as an athlete you know, living in this valley, you've been a, a great role model and a great, um, you know, person to, to carrot out there to, to measure myself against. And, and I know you know this, but you're that for so many people, you know, whether it's on the skis or on the bike or, um, you know, just 
looking at Strava times, you know, and I mean, you have a, a climb named after you on Vail Mountain, right? And your time's listed up there on a plaque, you know, so. Used to be, I don't know if it's still there. So people trying to take that down, you know, and, um, you know, and, and I think that, um, you know, for me, when I got into mountain bike racing and was here in the valley, it's like, all you heard about was my closer. I was like, oh, come on, who is this Seriously? guy, you know? And just like, closer this, closer that. And I was just like, you know, then we started racing together and, and I got to know you and, you know, to know who you are as a person and, and just how you model yourself in your daily um, activities and just that grind. I mean, you're always grinding, you know? I mean, when you Too were working at Beaver Creek and you're, you're commuting every day, you know, to work and, um, you know, I see you out there riding and, it's inspiring to me as as a athlete but also just as a uh as a father and and just to be able to follow your passion and and to uh model that behavior to the next generation of hey nothing's going to just going to show up on its door on your doorstep you know like you got to work for something if you if you yeah, want you it do. to happen you got to work hard for it and um you know nothing's guaranteed in this life and, and you know you and i both have enough friends that have left us too early mm. to know that um, we nothing's guaranteed you know and we got to capitalize on every single day um so i appreciate you being a role model to me and, and someone that i've looked up to over the years and, and still to this day and i appreciate you being a role model as a father figure and the way you've raised your family and and your family unit that you guys have there um, you know, and, and I hope that I can do the same for other folks. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and, and sit down and talk with us. I'd love to have you back on once we have the, the, um, the Fuji, or sorry, Fiji um, Eco Challenge airs and we're able to know what happens in that, right, the, right. the cliffhanger. Um, and we had Josiah on a, a few months back, so it'd be kind of fun to have you maybe both on and see, you know. Um, how I'd things enjoy that for down. sure. So, um, love yeah. to hear a little of his perspective. But thank you very much for that. Um, I have to say, um, a lot of that, uh, you know, my successes over the the years are, in a great part, due to my better half Emily. Because you know, as we all know, without our significant other's support and help along the way, um, we couldn't have achieved half of what we've have. I'm sure. Yeah, one hundred percent. And you know, she's been such a a mother figure for our kids and thankfully because a, l a lot of those years I wasn't around that much you know and right. she has helped uh, form them t to be who they are and the successes and um, people that they are with the, along with that but um, you know when it comes to you know my accomplishments there's also all these people that I looked up to as role models over the years you know whether it's even my father yeah he had his faults, as as do I and pretty much everybody else on this planet. But the, we can learn from those as well as the positive and um, supportive things that we all get from those um, uh, inspirations or father or um, whatever figures we look at them as. So um, thank you there. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to hear that people look up to some of the things that I've done in life as inspiration. And I hope as I continue to age and hopefully not too much of that on the athletic, uh, physical side in life that um, I can continue to be inspiration and 
to those who know of me out there. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you look at, um, like, you and Ned are, are two great examples, you know, and you guys are still doing it, you know, and I think that for, you're still out on the Monday night rides, you're still up there at the front, you know, and, and you're still, um, you know, jumping in the, the La Ruta, and you're jumping in Eco Challenge, and you're, you're just continuously fit, and I think that, um, yeah, there's a, there's a, um, there may be, like you're saying, this tailing off with fitness or tailing off with recovery as we age, but it's a use it or lose it thing, you know, and I know Josiah is a big uh, proponent of that, and it's, he's like, I've worked so hard for this fitness, why would I just sit back and let it go away right. in, an, in a quote-unquote off-season, um, you know, and I know Ned's the same way, like, you use it or lose it, you know, the high-intensity stuff um, goes away if you don't pin the system, so, um, you know, I think that for athletes as as we age you know that's just another area of um of inspiration for folks is like hey you're still doing it you know um and maybe you're not doing it the way that you can be competitive with the up and coming you know next generation or two generations removed but mm-hmm. um but you're still doing it and and um just got to get out there like you say you you, yeah. you don't use it you're going to lose it and you don't have to not everybody has to be an endurance freak or junkie you know just Whatever it is you enjoy doing that you can get outdoors if you can or whether it's indoors in the gyms or wherever it may be and spend time with your family if you have them, get out and enjoy that because life goes by really quickly. Well, I think that's one thing with this COVID stuff that's been just glossed over is that, you know, it, they don't talk about, you hear about the deaths, you hear about the number of positives and, and you hear about what's happening or what's not happening with, with shutdowns and government and everything, but we don't talk about immunity and we don't talk about health. The benefits you know, like, here's the things that about. you can do. Here's yeah. the things that you can go and do on your own and, and you can bolster your immune system by eating well and taking some Sunshine, supplements, getting outside no. for sure. And, and um, I feel like that's just glossed over too much, you know. Totally. Like, um, and hopefully that's one thing that does stick around, you know, if we can take a positive away from this whole lockdown is that people have had this time and they have decided to get out and be more active and they, whether it's cycling or walking or hiking or running, whatever. Absolutely. And hopefully that, those habits carry over, you know. Um, and we're in an interesting time and, and um, you know, like I said, I think that you're um, – just to just to be able to chat with you is just always an honor, and and uh, of course it's an, you're an inspiration. Likewise, to, thank you, yeah. both you and Steve. Yeah. yeah, great to catch up some. Yeah, I mean Eagle County has the lowest obesity rate in the country, and is the fittest yeah. county in the country. And I think it's you can argue that it's because of you. <laughs> I, I'm serious. Mm-hmm. You line up in a snowshoe race. If if Mike's there, it's legit. Like. Mm-hmm you know, mountain bike race at 50, mm-hmm. he's pushing you Yeah. at 25. Right. You know, I, I, I think that's it. Yeah. And people say, why are people in Eagle County so fit? Yeah. It's Mike. Wow. Thank that, you. But that, you know, maybe a little of that is rubbed off onto people like Jake and Josiah and Gretchen and all these other athletes. I mean, all these young kids, it's, mind-boggling how much talent there is in this county in this town and so forth and all the 
programs we have, whether it's ski club veils and the high schools and mountain bike camps, mountain bike camps, yeah. all that sort of stuff. It's great to see. And if I have been an inspiration or motivation to anybody along the route, thank you because um, I'm glad to play a part in it. But same thing I said earlier. When I moved here, I kind of started to evolve into who I am just because of all those other people out there doing what they're doing. So thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's inspiring to hear those kind of stats that Eagle County is on the top of the charts on the positive side of things. Yeah. I feel yeah. bad for other places. <laughs> they don't have him. You, know, you can go line up against the hack. All right. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, there's many other role models in this town, and thank you. Yeah, great. Well, let's do this again. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.